Hello, lovelies. Brian here. Um, just wanted to give a short little intro to what we have coming out today. Um, obviously, uh, last week at the end of the show, I mentioned I was going to be going under the knife, read the social media posts and everything. Um, I basically, as soon as the issue <laughs> last week's episode dropped, um, I went in for surgery uh, to have uh, my gallbladder removed. Uh, so I'm still on the mend from that, still recovering, and we do still plan to cover the Big Gay Brunch uh, from Chicago here on the show this week. Um, that episode will probably come out tomorrow, but I didn't want to let Thursday go by without something for y'all. So um, we're posting the uh, third episode of our Patreon uh, Patreon exclusive uh, show, Required Reading, here today, uh, which was all about Terry Funk and, and Roadhouse. Um, so the show, if you're not familiar, I explained it in there. I'll just give a quick little snap thing here for it, too. Every month, I pick a wrestling match that I feel is required reading, and my good friend and collaborator Hollis uh, picks a film that he believes is required reading, and we have a, a conversation between the two pieces of media. Uh, this this episode uh, was from last month, um, where we talked about Terry Funk's retirement match in 1983 as well as Roadhouse, and the movie breakdown's a little bit different than what we normally do. Well, normally we discuss, like, themes and, you know, symbolism and all that. You know, the the things that people who went to school to get English degrees talk about. Um, this this time around, is, I think it's more just about having our, our cake and celebrating uh, the, that chunk of, of, of Terry Funk's prolific career in a way so it's it's not as in-depth but fun a fun recounting of roadhouse and that sort of thing so but yeah so we're releasing this one for free we're i'm going to release next month's episode for free as well um which we're going to be discussing bray wyatt um in some form or fashion I already have a match picked out, so. But yeah, I just wanted Thursday uh, to not have something from us here real quick. So enjoy, and if you like it, you can go get the uh, other episodes that are available uh, over on patreon.com slash lgbtringpod. All right, no more plugs. Enjoy. What's up, guys, gals, and non-binary pals? Welcome to another episode of Required Reading, the show where we take pro wrestling and film and put them in conversation with one another. Or as I also like to put it, uh, my good friend Hollis and I use our unfinished English degrees uh, and put it to, to some good use. <laughs> there are scarecrows around some and good and use. Yes, exactly. We're putting it. We're putting it to a use that I might say is good personally because I enjoy doing this. But yes, Hollis, how are you doing today? Well, I got to say, I am. I am happy to on uh, on this day in a in a week uh, in a month where there's been a lot of loss. I I am happy to hopefully be bringing a little joy 
uh, to uh, to anybody listening to this podcast, uh, given the the film that we immediately unanimously agreed on covering today. I mean, it's either it's either Roadhouse or Paradise Alley if we're talking about Terry Funk, and I I rather I wanted to watch Roadhouse. I mean, you could do you you could do you you could do over the top. You could do over the top, yes. Like, I mean, and let's be real, one day we might end up doing over the top. I have a feeling we might. (laughs) I mean, if you Just knowing you. Yeah, I mean, it's a movie where Sylvester Stallone plays a character whose name is Hawk and is a trucker slash the best amateur arm wrestler on the planet. (laughs) it's it's the first and only movie ever to be written by an open can of mountain dew (laughs) i will i will agree with you on first i don't know about only but (laughs) that's fair that's fair we are covering roadhouse later there were a lot of skateboard movies that came out in the 90s let's just put it that way (laughs) That's true. I forgot about <laughs> cleaning the cube. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad we can I'm glad we can laugh right now. How are how are you doing? I I agree with you on that. I'm glad that we can laugh now because it has been an incredibly emotional week that's um, thrown the entire wrestling world for a, mm. multiple loops. Honestly, at this point, you know, as we're recording mm. this, we're yeah. just a few days removed from the deaths of both Terry Funk and Wyndham Rotunda, better known uh, to wrestling fans as Bray Wyatt. And um, it's, it's been rough. Like I know I talked a little bit about this on, on um, this, the episode of LGBT in the rain that came out this week. And like, that was hard to get through, but you know, I, I will, I will admit this. I, whenever I found out the news, um, knowing and knowing you, um, I was incredibly reluctant to even let you know what was going on because I didn't want to know what that would do to you to hear about uh, the passing of Terry Funk. Terry Funk was was another one of those big. Um, uh, I mean, anybody listening probably knows this, but to be clear. Terry Funk is the reason we have Mick Foley. <laughs> like to give you just to, just to just to give you a quick shortcut to why Terry Funk is so important and important to me. Um, I uh, um, in my in my youth, you know, I uh, I, I got into I, I started I, I I had been watching wrestling especially like only wrestling for a while just because it was it was sort of on in my house especially like when my cousins were around and um you know i remember terry funk from hanging out with bunkhouse buck and arn anderson and like scaring the pants off of like dusty roads like <laughs> and like the nasty boys uh in 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 pre NWO WCW, that stud staple was legit. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The um, I think they had Ming too. Yeah, that was uh Colonel Fuller's uh, bodyguard was Ming. 
God, that man mountain. <laughs> Sorry. Like, no, I'm. You are never discouraged from from Ming positivity on this show. Oh, yeah. oh no, yeah, oh, no, yeah. We are, or in just we, my daily life. <laughs> we are, we are Ming positive here. Here, required reading, no doubt Very about much. it. Um, Terry Terry Funk was, um, was basically like wrestling's cool grandpa. I I don't know how else to put it. Terry Funk was the the old guy that never lost the touch never lost the thunder um he was somebody when you were young you automatically knew was like legitimate uh like i um but i i became familiar with him through like his you know his work with wcw you you fell in love with terry funk through his work in ecw if i'm not mistaken yeah, ECW was uh my entry point to Terry Funk. So like I I got I found out about him like immediately as uh he was kind of leaning he was not even immediately he was like neck deep in hardcore legend territory at this point. He already wrestled a number of times for you know FMW over in Japan, the exploding barbed wire oh, yeah. death matches there. He already had you know, competed in the IWA King of the Deathmatch tournament, you know, and fighting uh, Mick Foley in the final of that in 95. And, um, you know, this was like really whenever Terry Funk was coming in to sort of legitimize ECW, right? Like obviously like that, that era kind of peaks in 97 with their first pay-per-view, barely legal, and Terry Funk wins the ECW world title there. Um as right before and they go off the air right before a transformer blows or something <laughs> so <laughs> according to legend um i'm not, I'm not but uh but yeah um like it's just it was a it was a completely different era of terry funk to enter and then that opened yep. up opened me up to the terry funk of the past right going back and watching his feud with flair in 89 going oh, yeah. back oh, yeah. and and you know seeing his work with uh in in 94 and then eventually like seeking out more of his deathmatch stuff you know seeing some of the matches from from fmw and uh especially like the most famous one where you know onita runs back into the ring to cover him and protect try and protect him from the exploding uh from the explosions around the ring because funk is just too tired and beaten to to leave the ring on his own accord um so like <laughs> and it's so it, it's it is it's amazing to me going back and looking because i i couldn't keep myself off of off of youtube this week going back and watching old old matches from terry and it's amazing the you know he was at the tail end of his of his sort of second renaissance when when i became familiar with him in the early 90s but there's just a few years difference not even five years between that and the hardcore legend era where where you, you became familiar with him in the ECW. And while we were talking about this before we started recording, it occurred to me, and we and we, we both kind of got into this, that Terry Funk never stopped learning his trade. Like he never he never rested on his laurels. He never was afraid to find out what new what new facet of Terry Funk could be him? 
Yeah, I mean, I would even go as far as to say, like, he was one of the few uh, wrestlers of his era that continued to keep his finger on the pulse of what was like kind of going on in pro wrestling, right? And yeah, being able absolutely. to recognize that and integrate some of that into what he was doing or, you know, influence the, the people that were around him as well. Like, one of the things that's been really, that's really stood out um, over the last few days, watching, you know, the outpouring and, and response on like social media from you know fans and wrestlers alike is just how giving and open and um and really approachable and humble that that Terry Funk was you know like if he was at a show he he was perfectly fine with like helping like you know get somebody get somebody over with the crowd right like mm-hmm. you know he was he was totally fine with you know like working with these with these indie talents that you know grew up idolizing him um you know like it was just it's just amazing to see that somebody like that could continue to have that sort of attitude towards the the pro wrestling world as they continue to you know age further and further into the evolution of what pro wrestling is now compared to what whenever they were you know more active or at one of that you know one of their peaks or their only peak um was and that sort of thing it's just it was always really um heartening to see that you know it didn't matter what it evolved into like funk was there and appreciative of it you're absolutely right and one of the things that that really that stood out to me and really sort of made my heart grow three sizes this week, looking back on Terry Funk's career was just how much, even as he was getting older and, and we were getting into the aughts and the tens where if he was still active and there were, there were some older, there were some older performers still active and they wanted some time in the limelight. Terry Funk was happy to do it. And that was both on this this side of the Pacific and the other side. Like there were like he had some amazing shows in the early 2010s with some NJPW like just all stars, just legends who hadn't hadn't been doing much maybe and could use like the the energy that Terry Funk Brown brought every time to the squared circle. Yeah, I mean, the match you're, you're mentioning specifically from 2010, like, that was a, a match full of legends. Like, I could just redo that match off right now. Is that Wrestle Kingdom 4, which is like the big Tokyo with, Dome with, show. With Mr. Abdullah the Butcher. Yes, yes. Manabu Nakanishi, Masahiro Choto, Ricky Choshu, and Terry Funk versus Abdullah the Butcher and uh Chaos members Takashi Izuka, Tomohiro Ishii and Toriyano. Um the um just... and like like I, I am I am I am an old man and I've been I've been out of the game for a while but hearing Masahiro Chono's name again I'm just like oh I still remember. Like I still remember watching those bootlegs I bought at Dragon Con. <laughs> Um, but my, my, just, you know, my point is that Terry never, never shied away. He never stood in the spotlight alone. Like it was always about 
the people shoulder to shoulder with him in that limelight putting together the show and you just that kind of that kind of magnanimousness just it, you get it once a generation and we had it with Terry Funk well, um, we we definitely did sorry no 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 of course of course no i apologize i just i he never stopped giving to wrestling over 50 plus years in the industry never stopped giving never stopped finding a way to bring the best show possible with the with the incredible ingredients like with with the people who were drawn to him like I mentioned Mick Foley and you never, you never have to prompt me to tell you how great Mick Foley is, but it wasn't just Mick Foley, you know, like it was the Sandman. It was, you know, like it was, it was Dustin Rhodes. It was fucking, I'm sorry. It was (laughs) like, it was Tommy Dreamer. Like there were, there were so many that, were drawn to Terry and that he was more than happy to help put like to, to help put over to, to put his shoulder into, he wanted the game to keep going. He wanted the story to never end. And because of him, I don't think it ever will. No. And it's, that's a very apt point uh, when talking about the match that we're watching this week because you know like like Ooh. i said on a previous uh episode of lgbt in the ring like we had a plan for this month uh but that plan got scrapped it's a great as... plan i love it i loved experiencing it and yes. we are looking forward to bringing it to you later this year yes but you know with the environment being what it is right now um we just we just needed to talk about terry funk this week um or this month rather and uh next month we're we're going to be talking about bray wyatt we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about bray wyatt so we have our two months, we absolutely two months will. planned out yeah but um sorry go ahead no we absolutely will be talking about bray wyatt i'm glad to i i you know i um as i've said uh <laughs> over and over uh to you guys listening to y'all listening that um you know i'm a i'm an old man and i i and i've been sort of out of the wrestling game for a while but even uh, like uh, bray wyatt was one of those was one of those names like like jeff hardy and cm punk that i would i, I would hear over and over and over again for years with awe and with you know with joy and delight about the kind of stories that were being told about the kind of fun, the kind of matches. Um, and uh, Bray Wyatt was, was younger than I am. Yeah. And, younger than both of us. Yeah. And it, um, it like this one hurts. Um, and Terry, Terry was Terry Funk was 79 when he passed, which, for wrestlers is I I I said to to Brian before we started recording that 79 is is 179 in non-wrestling years and I I wish that that were the case but it, it is right now um you know we've said before that you know we're not dark side of the ring and that you know we're not here to bring anyone down we are here to 
to talk about some great stuff and why we think it's great and why we hope you think it's great. But we will definitely, you know, uh, next time when we talk about Bray, um, talk about, you know, some of the reasons why we have to talk about him passing. Yeah. No, and I trust me, there's there's a lot that I could talk about with Bray. Um, and we, we will be, we will yeah. absolutely be bringing that to y'all. We absolutely will. Exactly. But for, for this month, for August, we yeah, are focusing on Terry Funk. And it's, uh, like, it's the, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, you, you picked such a winner to celebrate such a full life. This was like Italian finger kiss. This one, this one had everything, everything I was looking for. Yes. Of course, there's a litany of matches that could be chosen to to celebrate this moment, you know, from various eras of Terry Funk. But I wanted to go back to his very first retirement match in 1983. Actually, a very good timing for what we're doing the show. August 31st, 1983, almost 40 years to the day we are sitting down to talk about this match as from when it happened. Um. Terry Funk and Dory Funk Jr., the Funks, teaming up against Stan the Lariat Hansen and Terry Gordy. Stan Hansen, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as as I pointed out uh, to Brian while we were watching this for the second time due to audio issues, um, Stan Hansen is a remarkable wrestler enormous in japan uh to my understanding um but i could not get over the fact that he looks like what would happen if you gave chris farley the super soldier serum (laughs) 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 i I couldn't i couldn't leak no you see it you see it in the face as soon as you said it i couldn't i couldn't unsee it (laughs) you can't yeah you can't unsee it the um this this match is amazing. Um, this was uh, this was his first retirement match. This was Terry Funk's first mm-hmm. retirement match. Almost forty years ago. I'm going to repeat that. Terry Funk, who passed away re- very recently and had been wrestling up until to my at least, I know 2017, but I don't know past. Was, 2017 was, was was his last match. Yeah. 20, 2017. Yeah. Had his first <laughs> retirement match forty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> like he he retired before the VHS Betamax debate was settled. <laughs> like. <laughs> And and this like I, I say this and it's hilarious, but this is if you had to if you had to retire from wrestling, boy howdy is this a match to go out on? You're not lying, Lord. This match is outstanding. Like this is one of my favorite, you know, um, older Terry Funk matches to go back to from time to time and and watch. You know, because like like I said, we both kind of were introduced to Terry in eras prior to the or after this this match happened you know and so like if you become enamored with somebody you're always gonna like try and look back on what on what they're doing and and see what they were like before and it's just so interesting like we talked all about you know 
his ability to kind of evolve as Perezic evolved too. Like even, but this match speaks to how much of like Terry Funk is still in all of those iterations too, because like this, this Terry Funk felt like minus the barbed wire felt very much like, you know, the one that faced Sabu and that just little grizzly ass fucking barbed wire match in ECW in 97. Oh yeah. Like just no matter the era of Terry Funk, the, the, the thing that stands out to me, the, the watchword for any Terry Funk match, for any Terry Funk performance, is determination. Capital D underscore bold font italicized. Like, uh, the Stan Hansen is a beast of a man. Like, like looks like somebody shaved a Bigfoot and is trying to sneak him into an R-rated movie. <laughs> like, and... This match starts with uh, Stan throwing, or like very early in this match, you see Stan throw Terry into the ropes, setting him up for a lariat that would make him visit his grandchildren in the future. It's going to hit him so hard. Um, Stan Hansen's, one of Stan Hansen's nicknames is the lariat, and it's not a nickname, it's a fucking warning. <laughs> like. <laughs> And rather, and Terry, rather than, rather than like going face first into this elbow based Ragnarok decides, no, he's going to hold on to the, he's going to hold on to the rope and, and like, it's a cheap out, but fuck you. I'm Terry Funk. I'm not taking that hit. <laughs> like, like, I'm just going to Spider-Man these ropes. Oh, yeah. Like, no, I'm holding on to these ropes. Go away. Um, at, at one point, uh, at one point, Gordy has, uh, has, uh, has Dory Jr. dead to rights in a pin. And like, what does Harry do? Does he like come in and like uh, smash the back of uh, uh, Gordy's head? You know, does he does he just cross arm, you know, him off? Does he? No, no. He grabs the back of Terry Gordy's shorts and like, and just like wedgie hefts him off. Like, <laughs> fuck you. I'm Terry Funk. And if you mess with my brother, I'm going to, I'm going to take your underpants. <laughs> God. And that moment factors so much into like the, the determination stuff, like you're saying, like if like, because, you know, at that point, like Terry is like solidly selling the knee that, um, that oh, you know, yeah. Hanson and oh, Gordy yeah. have been working over. Right. And so like when he's going to like, you know, save his brother from the pinfall like he's he's still selling the leg like he's not putting pressure on it he's like falling to the ground and like just trying to lunge for it and like all he can grab is terry gordy's tights at that point so like that's what he grabs that's what he's fucking using because like his leg just won't it won't support him enough to to do anything else like it's just so it's just beautiful masterful work it's like and the it's it's so like they're working the leg and it's not like it's it, what's beautiful is that it's not just like, you know, this exploitative, they're looking to win. They are cruel about it. They are malicious. And Terry is selling the shit out of it. Like he cannot like there, this, this is a 20 minute match. And for a good six or seven minutes, he cannot get upright to save his fucking life. And I mean, save his life because they assault him like for a good third of this match. 
it is barely a wrestling match and it is just a straight up crime being committed <laughs> against Terry Funk's leg. The and because of that, Terry's got to get wily. Like he's got, like he gets squirrely. And what's great is that these seem like like you could you could you could fairly call some of these tactics like like heelish or cowardly. But the audience is a thousand percent behind it. Yeah. Because Terry is not doing it out of cowardness, coward or cowardliness. He's doing it out of cleverness. Like he like he knows that his like his primary weapon, like Terry, Terry is a mover. He's a brawler. He's a shaker. Like he wants to get you in the corner. And like and like soften you up. He wants to tenderize you. He doesn't have that movement anymore. So now he has to get creative. <laughs> and it's like and he pays for it in blood. I was I was talking about this with um with Brian before uh, while while we were watching before we record. We were taking another look at it. And like I uh, uh I uh as I've I've expressed to y'all before, I'm I'm a little squeamish about hardcore about like real hardcore matches i respect that terry funk is the master of and i'm going to say this very slowly and clearly so you understand what i'm saying terry funk is probably the un unmitigated king of exploding barbed wire matches <laughs> yep he looked look, look, look at a barbed wire match and said hmm not unsafe enough add explosions to it <laughs> like <laughs> but you know i am i am i am admittedly a little squeamish when you know when the the heavy hardcore damage starts playing out but with terry funk it it just never bothered me like terry fights so hard that he'll bleed for it that's just what's going to happen Terry is going to come at you so hard that you have to get his blood out of his body to get him to stop. And like Terry is betting on the fact that he has enough blood to beat you. And usually he does like it's, it's one of those things where it's one of those things where Terry sells the verisimilitude of his determination with every move. Like, he is not made of solid steel. He dents and he bends and you can see the pain and blood on his face. He is like, he is buying victories with pain and you believe it. You believe every second of it because nobody sells it better than Terry Funk. No, I mean, it's, it's written on his face every time, like even before the blood comes out. Now, there's a, a whole lot more to talk about with Terry Funk in regards to this match, obviously, and we will definitely get to that. But mm -hmm. I want to take a mm -hmm. moment and focus a bit on Terry Bam Bam Gordy and his presence in this match. I'm glad you do, because I I'm going to be completely honest with you right now. Um, in this match, the thing I care about least is the presence of Terry Gordy, and that's not his fault. I'm not. That is not a knock against... Terry Gordy. That is an affirmation of Terry and Dory Funk Jr. and a, a, a respect for Stan the Lariat Hanson. 
<laughs> yes, especially in the 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 climate that this match is taking place, which I think we have buried the lead a tiny bit on that aspect. Because I, this match is from <laughs> All Japan Pro Wrestling. We inevitably we will find one part of the lead to bury in every episode of the show, and I apologize. But yes, <laughs> this happened in All Japan Pro Wrestling, and that also factors into Terry Gordy's presence here because. This match is kind of the end of Terry Gordy's first real tour with All Japan Pro Wrestling. Obviously, he had already built a name for himself in the States as part of the Fabulous Freebirds down at World Class, as well as many other um, promotions throughout that time. You know, Georgia Champion Re- Cha- uh, Georgia Championship to, I was Wrestling. I about to say, I know the Freebirds were messing with, with Crockett back in the day. Oh yeah, they 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 had they had some shots of Crockett for sure. Um, but like Georgia Championship Wrestling, Championship Wrestling from Florida, um, the AWA. They, they made their way up there at one point. Then, of course, Crockett and WCW and that mm-hmm. new era, the Freebirds, post-Terry uh, Gordy and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But, no, he he was a known name already. And, you know, World Class had a working relationship with All Japan at this point. And so Terry Gordy made his first trip over here for this tour. And really this entire tour outside of the Terry Funk retirement, when it comes to this match being like the the major touchstone that was focused on in this, a lot of this, the focus of, of this tour in this match was also put on establishing Terry Gordy as a star in all Japan pro wrestling. Um, and that's evidenced by, you know, his run here, he gets brought in. He, he is immediately paired up with Stan Hansen and bruiser Brody as a, as a threesome there. Bruiser, and, bruiser Brody. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you have the three of them just running roughshod over all Japan, you know, and and also, you know, battling the funks multiple times uh, throughout this tour leading up to this match. And, you know, Gordy is here to plant that final flag in his presence in all Japan before going back to the States. Right. And in the future, you will see Terry Gordy become a major star for all Japan pro mm-hmm. wrestling, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be in singles contests or in his tag team with Dr. Death, Steve Williams, which, you know, they win the all age tag team championships over there um, as well. Uh, and really this is a starting point. And, and I think it, it sometimes gets lost in conversation about this match, exactly why Terry Funk wanted Terry Gordy to be in this match, right? Because like we talked about with at the beginning of this of this show with, you know, Terry Funk's attitudes towards the evolving landscape of pro wrestling and how he was always so giving with talents, whether it be for knowledge or actually out in front of crowds and that sort of thing. Terry Gordy's presence in this match speaks exactly to that sentiment that Terry Funk holds, right? Because as Terry Funk is setting to end his career, and at the time, like the, he thought he was going to be done. Like, no joke, this was not like a retirement match that was built to, like, pop a crowd and then he'll come back, like, six months later. He was out of the ring for about 14 months, if I'm not mistaken, really? at this point. Really? Yeah, yeah, he didn't come back until, like, like fall 84, um, or maybe even a little bit later. I don't know. Either way, sometime near the end of 84, he came back. Um, but in in setting up his final match, what he believed to be his final match— he 
made sure that he was paying it forward with somebody like Terry Gordy, who was just establishing his name in all Japan. And this match goes a long way to helping establish that name. Obviously when you have Terry Gordy getting, you know, heat and working over the limbs of both Dory Funk Jr. And Terry Funk throughout this match and establishing just how much uh, he belongs beside uh, Stan Hansen and Bruiser Brody in terms of wrestling style and in terms of aggressiveness and that sort of thing. Like, if I had not known that this was Terry Gordy's first tour in all Japan, I would have thought that he was already a solid part of the roster that was coming over for like, you know, five or six tours a year. You know, because of Gordy, the, the level of crowd acceptance of Gordy, granted, nowhere near where it was at for the Funks or for Stan Hansen to this point, but the crowd had taken to him, right? And and he showed off his skills, exactly exactly why they brought him in and what would go on to define his, his wrestling career in Japan going forward. You know, ultimately eating the pinfall in this match, but like that's fine. Like that's not that's not going to like really damage the image of Terry Gordy in the long run, right? So like it was just really it was really awesome to see that like even here at like the tail end, like Funk's presence, uh presence of mind to still think about the future of the business, which, you know, there are a lot of wrestlers in retirement matches that do think that way. I think the old adage is like, you're going out with, with uh, looking at the lights, you know, and, and putting over somebody new. And we've seen that in multiple matches that either were billed as retirement matches or had that tinge of retirement match, even though it was never officially announced or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's just a beautiful little like love letter to pro wrestling. I mean, the whole match is really, but it's just one of those specific facets where you look at Terry Gordy and what he goes on to do in all Japan pro wrestling after, after this, this tour. Yeah. I, um, watching this match, um, I'm not the biggest Terry Gordy fan in the world. Um, but I, I, I was thinking something that was going through my head was the phrase big in Japan is something I first heard, I think, in relation to Terry Gordy. Um, because uh, he, he's, uh, like, Japan is sort of its own its own wrestling biome in many ways, but it shares talent in, in many ways as well. And it has its, its own ups and downs. Um, it has its own heat, its own pops, uh, its own crowd feeling, which, wow. The the crowd feel in this thing is amazing, but we're going to yes, get to that is. later. Um, but Terry Gordy is one of those is one of those wrestlers that I knew primarily through like speaking with older wrestling fans and and then being like, oh no, he's big in Japan. He wrestles, you know, he's he's over there, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, wrestling with like Bruiser Brody and stuff like that. Um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, going into this match, uh he knows exactly what the timber of kind of like heel work he is supposed to be doing. And it is pitch perfect. Um, the um, throughout, uh, throughout the, I would say the second half of the match, um, Gordy and uh, Hanson f- uh, focus on uh, Terry Funk's uh, right knee, which is injured. And it goes beyond the exploitative to just being downright cruel. Like it's malicious. It's not even that they are craven and that they're trying to get an advantage. They, 
like they they clearly in the story of the match want to mangle Terry Funk. Yeah. And it sold a thousand percent. And uh, we talked about this a little bit when just talking about Terry uh, Terry Funk as a as a wrestler, as a professional in his profession. You're absolutely right. Um, Terry was always, always, always looking for where he could pay it back, pay it forward, like where he could elevate the craft he loved by doing what he loved and making sure that other that that other fans could see we Terry had a a, a really I'm I'm thinking now of of Mick Foley and, and Tommy Dreamer mm-hmm. but ter- Terry Terry Funk had a, a, a an almost preternatural third eye to look in to look in young professionals and to bring out in them what he saw to the fans. The um do I I mean I don't think anybody could look me in the eye and tell me that we in 2023 would know the name Cactus Jack if Terry Funk didn't see something in Foley that was singular. Um I think that you only have that eye when you have a when you have a when when you truly have a love of I, I keep wanting to say love of the game, like a love of the sport, a love of the stories getting told and how they are told. And I mean, telling telling them with other with other amazing storytellers. Yeah, I mean you don't stay in this game for 52 years if you don't have a deep intensely held love of what pro wrestling the hold that pro wrestling has on people and what you can do with it, right? Very much so. And you know, I um, it's not hard to look at my favorites, um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, the over the years, the your, your your Terry Funks, your 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 Dusty Rhodes, of course, your Mick Foley's, your your Diamond Dallas Pages, and I, you know, I. I love, you know, I love the common man, you know, like I, I love, I love the guy who looks like he wandered off, off of the, off of the street and just decided that wrestling was what he wanted to do with his life. <laughs> and Terry Funk never, like, even, even in his, in, even in like the deepest hardcore legend era where Terry was a, was, was literally a walking myth. Like he never lost that common man energy. Like, you know, when when he started when he started wrestling with Dory Funk Jr., I mean, their whole angle were just being, you know, good old boys. We're just being Texans. Yeah. I mean, they were just tough dudes from Texas who would beat the shit out of people that came through their territory down in Amarillo and, and the rest of West Texas over there. Amen. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and they carried that over to Japan and they became giant stars in Japan. They carried it over everywhere they went and became massive stars. Both brothers held the NWA World Heavyweight Championship at one point. I really you know? appreciated I I like watching this match because I, you know, I I was I was familiar with Gordy and Hanson, um, just as, as as old school, as you know, as old school great workers. But I, you know, I know Dory Junior and Terry. Like I'm, I'm inter- I'm fans of theirs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And watching 
watching Gordy and Hanson come out in those ridiculous over-the-top cowboy outfits, knowing <laughs> what I knew about Terry and Dory Jr., like, I was just like, oh, this is perfect because you've got the pretenders versus the genuine article. Like, you've, <laughs> you know, you, the heels are being this ostentatious version of, of what they think, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, Texas is and, you know, they're selling it to the crowd. But then you got the funks and they're the real fucking deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and it's it's going to be a slaughter. <laughs> and, the, and the thing is, on any other night, Stan Hansen and Terry Gordy coming out like that, like they do represent that mentality, too. Now, granted, Terry Gordy's not originally from Texas. He's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. But still, you got some cowboy energy coming from over there, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so like like they are they still embody that to a point. But when you put it juxtapose them against the funks in this situation, you there's a discrepancy for sure that can that that can be seen by the audience. And they it and it's on I feel like it's on purpose too, in a way, right? Um, and and it translates in audience reaction as well. You know, I think this is a good point to kind of talk about the audience for this show Brian, the, I, the... I am i am so glad <laughs> uh, again I, for the ninth time since we started recording um so what listeners might not know is we had a little a little kerfuffle yeah don't use uh, zoom as a screen share people if you want people to hear <laughs> the video that you're using that you want them to watch but I, I was just I was I, I didn't realize I thought it was just an old uh, an old recording that didn't have sound so I was just like I was watching it kind of like golf just like oh you know very good move there very well executed there you know like um, and actually honestly I'm glad we did it we watched the first match we watched the match for the first time and I wasn't able to hear the match at all I was just able to see it which I'm actually really glad for because it it, it uh, I I had never really known how good of a job Stan Hansen does selling with facial expressions, like selling his work in ring. And he, he's, he's doing an amazing job. Like even on like this old busted, like, you know, straight to beta max recording tape we're watching. Like you can, you can see when he's like, when he's planning something duplicitous or when like he's pissed off that like, you know, a shot he was trying to call Terry totally negated it, which I love, by the way, we did just real quick. Terry multiple times throughout this match is just like, no, go, no, go fuck yourself. I'm not going to do that. Like, <laughs> like he just, he does this quick, like take a third option thing, like multiple times in the match. And it's almost always like in front of Stan or directly to Gordy, but Gordy can't do anything about it. And it's fucking hilarious. Um, but I digress. Um, we watched it again with the audio and hearing this crowd, hearing this crowd was transcendent for me. It was amazing. And watching their reactions, uh, there was, if you, if you, if you take the time to find this match and you should, that's why we're doing this. Um, there is a, there's a small gaggle of what appear to be like a teenage, like lady, like high school students. And they're all wearing like yellow shirts and they are watching this match 
between the Funks and Hanson and Gordy as if they are watching God and the devil fight for the very fate of the earth. Like every every heel hit that especially that Hanson gets on 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 Terry Funk, they gasp in sheer horror and panic. And it's <laughs> amazing. It truly is. And, and like this speaks so much to like the Japanese audience's love of, of pro wrestling. Because obviously in, in Japan, like it's treated more as a sport, right? It, it very much forward facing, both in terms of like um audience perception as well as you know media coverage of it right obviously like there there are plenty of people you know i would say probably the majority of japanese wrestling fans that like they know that it's a work so to speak right but you still like there there's like you're still suspending your disbelief right and this and and it's just it just comes through in in their reactions being so genuine and you know, it, this match, like for the longest time, if you've if been around like the pro wrestling discussion circles and message boards and, and all this stuff for, for as long as I have at this point, you know, back when I first started pro wrestling, was starting to hear about Japanese pro wrestling. Um, you know, I, I was always told, and, and I know I'm not the only one, but I was always told that like Japanese audiences are different, like they're quiet and they applaud at stuff as opposed to like you know the cheering of american fans that sort of thing and i'm like no no they aren't they are into this shit and and very very vocal and not to say that they wouldn't be into it if they were like you know more stoic and quiet and applauding for certain things but like this crowd in 1983 proves that to be a misnomer the same way that you know watching any japanese show from the last i'd say like 10 to 15 years also explains that away Right. That, that is not at all what it is. And this crowd is molten hot from the very beginning, from the minute that, you know, they start fighting in the massive amount of streamers that are still in the ring from the oh, pre-match yeah. announcements oh, yeah. to the point to to the very end of the match where like the, just the pops for the hot for the tags between the funks are just massive the chance for dory and terry are massive oh man oh man oh man sorry sorry go ahead sorry sorry just real quick that uh there's a there's a there's there's a there's a moment where dory jr does like four consecutive drop kicks and yes. the crowd shakes the building <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please continue. Oh no, you are totally fine. But like, and then that leads up to to the finish of the match, right? Where Terry Gordy has has Funk down in the middle of the ring. Uh, Terry Funk, rather. Uh, so they're both they're both Funks. Um, is Terry Funk <laughs> down and goes to the top rope to hit a splash to end it? And Terry rolls out of the way, and then he goes to the top rope, busted leg and all. Yeah, uh, a- Gordy. Gordy, by the way, sells his his drop to the drop to the mat like a Looney Tunes character. It's 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 perfect. Oh yes, I mean, there's more to talk about with, with Gordy selling, but let me let me. I want to get this part please, out please, of the way first. Please. But you know, Funk Terry Funk goes to the top rope, hits a top rope sunset flip onto Terry Gordy that is just crisp as crisp can be to get the one two three here, and that the the volume that exudes from the crowd in this building at the, at the three count for this match is just mind boggling loud. 
it is amazing like how how much they like just just the sheer volume of it like it's hard to even put into words really it's just like it's one of those things that when you Uh, watch it you feel it in your body you you can literally see it in the camera i you know watching it twice i could i could feel like you can see the camera having a hard time like the obviously like the camera operator who is clearly a consummate professional is still having trouble because he is suddenly in the middle of like an active tornado of sound. <laughs> You're not wrong. And it is a beautiful moment and it signifies just how much Terry Funk and, and Dory Funk too, but the night's about Terry, like it signifies what Terry meant to the, that audience in Japan, you know, um, what he's meant to all Japan over the last few number of years through this point of his career. And just to see the, the amount of admiration and, and love that they show for him is just it, the strength of it just, it sits with you for much, much longer than this match goes. Like I know earlier in the show that you said it was like a 20 minute match. And I love that you said that because like the match is only 13 minutes long. But it feels like this massive like clash right. that goes right. that long, right? Because well, parts of it, parts of it are because you you did not sell this hard enough telling the audience the streamers that get thrown in at the beginning of the match are so thick you cannot see the mat. Yeah, you, I mean, you can't even see, see Terry Funk for a minute. <laughs> Yeah. So he disappears under the streamers and you fear you'll never see him again. Yet somehow like he Stan Hansen still by... finds him. <laughs> that is because Stan Hansen is the legendary streamer shark <laughs> and, and is, able, is able to swim through the fun confetti like a predator because his arm hungers for new ghosts. <laughs> I, I I have said this once already in this podcast, but I need I need you to understand. Stan Valeriat Hansen's arm may have been created as part of the Manhattan Project. <laughs> I mean, based off of like how that uh that young boy takes it at the, oh my at the, god. the post. Oh my god. Yeah, okay, before <laughs> so you, you mentioned how much the crowd loves Harry. And I, I wanted to, I, we, we definitely need to talk about how much Terry clearly loves the crowd as well. We're going yes. to get to that. But real quick, the Stan Hansen, Stan Valeriat Hansen is upset at the call that that led to, led to him and Gordy uh, uh, losing the match. And he begins to push the official and some of the ring workers who come out. Some of the ring workers decide to try and 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 contain Stan the Larry and Hanson. <laughs> and much like the poor, poor workers who tried to contain the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park, <laughs> this will prove to be a deadly mistake. Because Stan pushes one hard enough. I'm pretty sure he just straight up ejects him from the rank. 
there's another one I think he he cups on like the arm and shoulder and the man just vanishes into the background <laughs> possibly never to be seen or heard from again but that is not that's not the main show I know what you're thinking well didn't we just watch the main show didn't we just watch like a 13 to to 17 minute uh exp- you know exhibition between the funks and and Gordy and Hanson no no you fucking didn't because the main the main event is this poor 17-year-old fucking ring worker kid's very, very vulnerable spine. And, <laughs> and Stan Hansen's arm, crafted by monsters before time and light existed, sent to this world to hurt and kill. Because, and it's, the amazing thing is, he hits this kid with a lariat, and it's so casual on Stan's part. It is like if he were doing it to to one of the funks, like it would be it would be just a pretty standard hit. But he's doing it not to one of these gods of the ring, but to some bystander, to some part timer. (laughs) And when this kid hits the mat. Joy dies. (laughs) <laughs> like, <laughs> this, like you literally see on the uh, on the, like you you like you can't because of the angle you can't see the faces of the other ring workers but it is clear they have watched a friend die like, oh yeah just the expediency be... that comes after that moment oh yeah oh yeah right. because at that point after that hansen is surrounded by at least two dozen ring workers and just and they just physically eject him like it, it literally looks like an ant colony throwing a tarantula out. <laughs> like, it, like you literally lose Stan Hansen in a wash of ring worker flesh. The young man has to be dragged. He is <laughs> gone. <laughs> I am I I personally am working off the theory that his soul was sent back in time. To the medieval days, mm-hmm. and it's currently fighting alongside King Arthur against Lady Morgana, and hopefully her magic can send him back to his own time because <laughs> his soul is not currently in that fucking body. I just love the image of the other uh, ring ring crew, like just picking him <laughs> up by all four of his limbs individually and just pulling him over to the ring apron before they carry him out. And this like kid, like, like fireman catch style. He's not faking it. No one can act that well. He is unconscious. And I mean, can... knowing Stan Hansen, he probably was unconscious. That thing, he oh. did not, that was not a worked lariat ever. <laughs> no, it was not. Like, <laughs> and you can tell he's unconscious because like they bop his head on the on the on the on the lowest on the lowest rope, and then it like bounces off the mat. He doesn't react at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> the first the first human time traveler was created in 1983 when Stan Hansen sent this poor boy through time and space <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> like I look this this is about Terry Funk but I couldn't let that go I like I wouldn't have let you let that go I legit after after we hung up and like I went and got a drink at last night. I watched that moment again. Just like did I <laughs> did I 
did I dream that? No, no. I, I watched Stan Henson Lariat murder a ring crew guy. <laughs> I mean, it's the perfect uh, exclamation point on the end of this match, right? You've seen the Titans. It's perfect. It's it's pitch perfect. Pitch yeah, perfect. It is it's so I, good. Because anytime you see Stan Hansen, you want to see at least one Lariat. And you oh, didn't yeah. get it in the match, so you got it in the post-match, and it was glorious. It was the thing well, of gods. Literally, like uh, he uh Stan was setting up a Lariat, and Terry was like, No, I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, I'm fuck gonna, that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take that Lariat. I know what no. you're trying to do. You're trying to Larry me. No, I'm not doing it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, beautiful. <laughs> Well, we're, we're, I think the next thing that we should talk about is the promo afterwards. But just before yes, we get there, yes, I just want to note that um, there was one moment from Terry Gordy's like selling in this match that really that stuck with me. I already like partially because of like what you said while we were watching it, right? Um, because at one point, you know, him and Dory are kind of like facing off in, in this like shoulder tackle kind of battle so to speak right or like oh, they're just, yeah. they're just oh, yeah. running into one another and like you know T- gordy's got the upper hand and then you know he he sends dory into the ropes and dory comes in and just um no 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 sorry let me back that up real quick he like he run terry gordy runs hits the ropes and comes at dory funk with a shoulder tackle that does knock dory funk down but then Gordy just a beautiful over the, over the top sort of bump of his own because I believe as you put it like even if you're doing harm to Dory Funk you're still running into a brick wall. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> Gordy, Gordy, Gordy's do, doing some immaculate work here, and like as much as we joked about Han- Stan Hansen, he was playing like he was he was monstering it up really uh, amazingly well. They were doing phenomenal i'm the thing is like when you're when you're up against the funks you're up against pure art you're up against absolute naturals and gordy sells it he sells it every second every second terry gordy is having to wrangle dory funk jr it 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 appears as if you are watching a man fight a literal mythical beast like dory funk jr is basic like is basically the T eight hundred from Terminator, and like like you can you can slow him down at great physical cost to yourself, and Gordy just sells the hell out of it. Like the um, it's it's one of the like the the beginning focus on uh Terry on like mangling like Terry Funk's knee. It starts as a desperation move because like Gordy's out of tricks. And I, you know, I, it's, he is, sell, he sells it in body language. He sells it in facial expressions. He sells it, he sells it in move setups. It's, it's phenomenal. Not to mention the fact that it does set up also Terry Gordy using the Funk's famous spinning toe hold on Terry, committing Which, the sacrilege. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Don't don't try and out funk a funk. How dare you? Hell no. Hell no. All right, let's talk about this post match promo because I feel like this is the probably Ooh. the most shared moment of this match online, and it made it definitely made the rounds after you know everybody learned of of Funk's passing and everything. But even before then, like it just it it's a moment that speaks to the spirit of Terry Funk 
that has stuck for the last 40 years. Um, so much so that like he's kind of he's like he's hinted at it at times, you know, in promos in the past since then, as well as probably the most memorable instance of it was uh during during uh 2020s uh GCW Fight Forever event where they ran a a 24-hour stream of independent pro wrestling shows from a closed venue um, that was meant as like a fundraising effort for the wrestlers themselves, right? But on this Mm -hmm. show, especially since the show is called Fight Forever, they had Terry, like they got Terry Funk to record like uh, a commercial for for the event. Um, And it (laughs) <laughs> that commercial itself became a running meme within the wrestling audience because Terry Funk, you know, is talking about, you know, fight forever and just keeps repeating forever over and over again in it. Like forever, forever, over and over again in this in this commercial spot that aired like I cannot even count how many times it aired during the course of this 24 hour live stream. Right. And it just, it was just one of those things that just caught on with wrestling audiences and it's, it has stuck around as a meme since then, but that itself hints back at this promo because this is where that all originates from. Right. Mm -hmm. After the match, like, you know, Terry is still like, he is still selling the hell out of that leg. He's like, he's, even with the ref's help, he can't stand up. Like it takes the ref and Dory to help him get up to the ropes. And he has to use this, the ropes to support himself. And then we get this magical moment where Dory hands him a microphone and the lights come down and there's a spotlight on Terry Funk. And the microphone isn't even working properly for the first part of this promo. But it's, it's literally just him speaking to the audience there and the audience that is watching this on TV um, in Japan and saying, you know, Japan is number one and expressing his love for the Japanese audience and the Japanese wrestling community. And, and then he just a bloodied sweat dripping teary eyed Terry Funk just keeps screaming forever, forever forever into the microphone once the microphone starts working you can hear it more clearly but he's just screaming forever 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 into the microphone towards the crowd and you know tells them again you know japan's number one forever and tells him how much he loves you and says goodbye in both english and japanese um, they they start yelling it back at him too and yeah. it is it fills like it it is it is pure energy you can you can feel it filling the air of that place. Yeah, I mean that that building that they were at had, I believe, has a capacity of like thirteen thousand six hundred people, um, for for a wrestling event. But on that night, like it felt like the entire fucking earth was yeah, was there with him in that moment. Uh, it's just, oh god. And you know, I I I have seen it referenced, you know, later, you know, in in you know by by funk himself but watching watching the moment it's clear he is because in that moment he thinks he's having to let go yeah and it's you know you're you're so used to seeing terry funk like he could stand up to anything you know he could take any punishment he can move any mountain and it's clear it's the hardest thing he's ever done in his life 
Uh, and the audience knows it. And it's one of the hardest things they've had to ever do in their lives because like, it's not like they don't know. Like, it's, uh, you know, we were when we were watching this, um, I don't know if I've mentioned it. Uh, we've talked a lot in this recording. I don't know if we mentioned it yet. But, uh, you know, after after we kind of sat for a second and just absorbed, you know, the ending and, and everything, I said to you that, it, you know, if I was sitting there in, in 83, you know, six-year-old Hollis, you know, the Japanese equivalent of six-year-old Hollis, and I was watching this, this match, you know, in a, you know, in a dark living room illuminated by a CRT. If I was watching this match happening in real life, I was watching Terry say these things. It would have changed me on a molecular level. It would have changed my life. Mm. The, um, and it's, to me, it's even more amazing in the context of of his entire career because it it contextualizes for you that you are watching a a performer who thought they had to walk away and they managed to come back you know uh terry was back within i think a year or two yeah well about a year he came back in 84 the um now was it was this was this one of the ones one of the momentary retirements for medical reasons that he had i'm not entirely sure why i mean obviously at this point he'd already been you know wrestling for 18 years you know a lot of wear and tear on the body and obviously you know watching beyond the mat you know the the documentary that came out in the 90s like there's an extensive segment in that in that uh film that shows you know just the damage that Terry Funk's body has taken, you know, over the course of his wrestling career to that point, you know, obviously that's an additional like decade plus that's added on to where we're at right now. But like by like 1997, he has no cartilage in his knees. Right. You know, like I, I can imagine that there is probably some aspect of it, you know, wanting to save his body, you know, and, and wanting to kind of go into retirement with some what, what relative health, you know, and that sort of thing. But also at this point, he had accomplished so much already. You know, like I said, he was NWA World World's Heavyweight Champion. He'd wrestled for, you know, countless promotions, both in the United States and abroad. Um, you know, he's just he's done he's done it all in a lot of in that era of pro wrestling, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like I can understand his mindset of being like, Yeah, I this is a good time to to call it a career at this point. You know, obviously there was still a pull for pro wrestling within him. I mean, that's why we have the seven canonical retirement matches of Terry Funk that we can look right. to over the years, right? Um, even though two of those weren't necessarily uh, known to him as retirement matches, <laughs> whether it be because for various reasons. Uh, shout out to WCW for not telling him the booking in 1989. Um, so... I don't know. Really, like, that will that will be the last major problem WCW has. Right? Totally. 
it's uh, not like it's, the, it's not like issues with that company lasted into the mid aughts. No, 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 years no, no, after no. it was already dead. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, I foresee the late nineties as smooth sailing for WCW. Mark my so. words. We're totally not going to see Terry Funk throw a raw chicken at Dustin Rhodes in the ring in <laughs> WCW in the year two thousand, right? Which, by the way, if anybody's going to get over throwing a raw chicken at somebody, it's Terry fucking Funk. God damn it, that was so oh, good. God. Oh god, my organs. Ow. Oh, my organs hurt. My organs hurt from laughing. But but even this speaking, like if he if this is the point in, in this in this timeline that we have where he is calling it a career, like there's no better way to go out than than to have the, the crowd response to that promo and to and to shed the emotion that he did during that promo. And looking at that at, at that that you know moment like it speak like you said it speaks not only to, to terry funk's entire wrestling career it speaks to terry funk's life and it speaks it to terry funk's it's, legacy because in, I, I, no sorry please continue because if there's one word that i can really ascribe to terry funk's influence and presence and how it'll be remembered and carried on through the various centuries that we have ahead of us in the pro wrestling world, it will be forever. Terry yeah. Funk will never be forgotten. No, you know, there might be. It's, it, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's impossible. I, I was, before we get too far away from it, I wanted to say, I, I hate, I don't, I don't want to seem like I am, prognosticating after the fact but you're absolutely right about terry funk's career up to 83 because and we are we are and in 83 going into 84 we're right on the cusp of the cable era you know rock and wrestling you know the 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 unification of wrestling the disillusion of the territories in yeah. many in many ways wrestling had to fundamentally change before there were more challenges for a guy like terry funk the the, the game he had perfected the game and the game had to change before there was more for him to do there were more mountains to climb and he fucking climbed every one of them definitely did i mean he helped build some of those and still and, and climbed them you know amen like it's just it's just amazing to see everything that he accomplished in, in his career after this point and to know that he already had had such an accomplished career heading into this match specifically too it's like this is like a third a little more than a third of his entire pro wrestling career and he was all and he had already done enough to be remembered as an icon of course, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the I'm I'm reminded of what we talked about with Dusty Rhodes, where you have great performers, you have amazing, you have performers with amazing technical aptitude, you have performers with unparalleled mic skills, but then you have the strata of wrestlers who, by their very nature, change wrestling forever. Dusty Rhodes is one of them, and Terry Funk absolutely is another one. Yeah, yeah. It's just an, it's an amazing match to revisit, and and 
probably it's just uh, I don't know. Like watching that that promo back again, like it really obviously there's still like a lot of emotional turmoil for myself and for a lot of people out there that are really torn up about you know this inevitable inevitable part of life that that happens to all of us but you know there is solace in in having the images of Terry Funk that we do have to look back to and knowing that that legacy will be carried on for forever there will always be one at least one person walking God's green earth that knows the name Terry Funk no matter how far we get away from it and no matter how much dust kind of grows on the history books of pro wrestling right I, you know, I just said I, I hate to prognosticate, but I'm going to do it right now. Mm. In 70, 80, 90 years, they're going to be snot, snot-nosed backyard wrestlers trying to impress some booker, and they're going to look at him and be like, well, you're good, but are you Terry Funk good? <clears throat> like, <clears throat> he he is a watermark that can't be reached like uh i over the past few days especially uh especially uh, unfortunately contextualized with the loss of bray wyatt um i've been thinking about terry funk and how you know going on 80 years put getting almost a century of terry funk I don't know if we could have asked for more. I don't know if he could have asked for more. And I know that part of that, if you had asked him, because many people did, the things out of his mouth were rarely boastful or prideful. I mean, the man knew his worth. Absolutely. He knew what his accomplishments were, and he was not shy of them. But when, when fans or podcasters or interviewers or reporters when they got into the nitty gritty talking with Terry Funk, the man came alive talking about wrestling, talking about other wrestlers. Once he wanted to face, once he had faced, once he was interested in seeing develop, I, I the man never stopped looking to the horizon. And the best way to remember Terry Funk is to do the exact same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I don't have a good transition into this. And that's part why of we're the show. watching goddamn Roadhouse. <laughs> I'm glad that I knew there's a reason why I picked you to host this show with me, Hollis. <laughs> just I just know you. This fucking, this fucking Roadhouse. Yeah, we watch, of course, if we're going to talk about Terry Funk, we watch Roadhouse, uh, the 1989 action thriller. Listen, that also is one of the like I think regarded as one of the best like <laughs> B movie. Like I'll call it a B movie. I don't care. It's <laughs> listen, listen, all all ye who have have downloaded this podcast, you hear me well. We have spent multiple hours being exceptionally emotionally vulnerable to talk about Terry Funk and what he means to us, and now we get a treat. We get to stop feeling things and start hitting things like spiritually by talking about Roadhouse. Yes, god damn it. Obviously, Terry Funk is in this movie as well, which, which is, is a, a good through it. line. 
Of course, of course, Terry Funk's in it. You have to be able to clothesline a man to death to be in Roadhouse. It was on the call sheet. <laughs> All right. I'm just going to set this up because I know it's a question that you're going to have. And I know it's a question that you're going to have difficulty answering, I think, just based off of our prior conversations about Roadhouse, which there have been plenty of those conversations over the last like 10, 15, however long oh, years we've known oh, each other. Listeners, they're not joking. Like no. Roadhouse comes up at least every six between the two of us and uh, our the close friend of the show, Reverend Rabies. Roadhouse comes up at least twice a year. Yep. If not more often. Yeah. Like <laughs> like eclipses. Roadhouse comes <laughs> twice a year to humble us. Yes, and it remind does. us that we are mortal and we shall never be Dalton. So, Hollis, knowing that, why do you love Roadhouse? Why do I love Roadhouse? Why do you love Roadhouse? I love I love Roadhouse in the same way that when a person finds themselves on a boat in the ocean and they're faced with some powerful, you know, historical horror, like a great white shark, no matter how much fear exists in their mind, deep, deep within your brain is an ancient monkey lizard that climbed up the tree first that got the berries first that looks at that giant fucking fish and says, punch it in its stupid fucking face. That same part of my brain (laughs) loves roadhouse. (laughs) Why do I love roadhouse? Because the title of roadhouse displays over a woman's ass in a lycra miniskirt. Now, you might be saying, that's very sexist. Don't worry. The next immediate shot is bar fight karate. (laughs) Now, I know what you're thinking. The shot after that is certainly going to give us like a character or establish a setting. No, you peasant. It's titties. (laughs) And after those titties, of course, we're going to go over to a character. Psych! More bar karate! (laughs) You fool! You fell into my trap of more bar karate. (laughs) At the beginning of Roadhouse, a guy who looks like the lead singer of the outfield tries to knife murder Patrick Swayze. (laughs) Patrick Swayze gets the man to throw himself out of the bar quietly. And then goes to sew up his own arm shirtless from the knife wound. (laughs) Meanwhile, you have a club owner from just outside of Kansas City. Good old Jasper, Missouri. Jasper, Missouri. Letting himself into this room, which is clearly an employee's only room. Thank you. (laughs) Breaking breaking all the goddamn rules. To record. To recruit Dalton. He comes in. Yeah, Patrick Swayze's character, by the way, is his his name is Dalton. And I know what you're thinking. Is that a first name? Is that a last name? Uh, Fuck you. It's Dalton. (laughs) 
you're talking about you're talking about a character you're talking about a character in a movie in a world in, in, in the in the storybook world that roadhouse creates for you dalton is what's known as a cooler which is basically like a boss of bouncers yeah and, and he is such a well-known professional cooler that he is only known by Dalton. He's currently working in New York City, but when he goes to Jasper, Missouri, and introduces himself to, like, the first waitress he just sees in Jasper, Missouri, she's like, Dalton, I've heard of you. And she's immediately turned on. We'll get into that. We will get into that. But first, we have to go back to the beginning of the film, where Patrick Swayze is shirtlessly sewing a knife wound close on his arm within the first four minutes of this motherfucking film. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think the credits have gotten to like the producer credit yet before Patrick Swayze is shirtless, bloody and operating on himself. <laughs> it's the, um, so, so Frank Frank Tillman owns a bar in Jasper, Missouri called the Double Deuce. Double Deuce. Which the way he describes it is it's the kind of place where they sweep up the eyeballs at the end of the night. <laughs> Which oh, is just such a good what, piece fucking, of writing. Fucking Whitman couldn't come up with a turn of phrase like that. God damn, so good. But but, but but Mr. Tillman, he wants to invest more money into the Double Deuce so it can make more money for him. The problem is, it's just too rowdy. There are just too many bar fights at the Double Deuce in Jasper, Missouri for him to safely upgrade. So... <laughs> So he needs he needs someone to he needs someone who knows the ways. He needs someone who knows the sways. He needs <laughs> Dalton. Now Dalton tells him he no, because because Frank Dalton's like, I need the best. And Dalton's immediately like, well, no, 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 no. Wade Garrett's the best. But Frank Tillman's like, don't give me any of that, you fucking twink. <laughs> Wade, Garrett Wade Garrett's old. old. <laughs> yeah, Wade Garrett's old. I need someone young and turgid. Like, <laughs> I need that rock hard capability. I, I need, yeah, like, I need someone, I need someone pulsating with Daltonness. So, <laughs> He he sells him on taking over this job at this bar, and the he tells him that it's five thousand dollars up front, and I think he gets like it's five thousand dollars up front. I think he gets like five hundred dollars a night. Yeah, and the boss has to cover all medical expenses. Yeah, which I reiterate, <laughs> Dalton was sewing himself up. Before this movie told me who the casting director was. <laughs> I love the fact that like Dalton is so in tune and so accepting of like the violence of his job that he travels around with his own copy of his medical records just in a briefcase just so he could take him to the hospital whenever he goes into the oh, hospital. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, like everything we find out about Dalton is simultaneously the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard, but also the fucking coolest. 
<laughs> because Dalton decides to take this guy up on his job, immediately quits. Like his boss walks into his own office, finds a shirtless Patrick Swayze and a kind and like a like a doughy bar owner in his in his private office. And Patrick Swayze is like, by the way, I just fucking quit. He walks out, he drives, he drives a piece of shit Chevy over to a parking garage. I don't know if you remember this or not. Um, oh, I do. Th- throws the keys of his piece of shit Chevy to just, uh, I think, just a homeless man. Yep. And goes inside and pulls out a pristine, I think it's like a Mercedes-Benz 500. Yeah. Or, like, it's a it's a pristine modern at the time Mercedes sedan, and he ends up driving that to, to Jasper, Missouri, where we get to we get to do this this long sequence where he's like introduced to the double deuce, and it is fucking amazing because you get introduced to the double deuce the same way you get introduced to the bar at the beginning of star wars full of monster aliens <laughs> it's lovely environmental storytelling it's, it's amazing you have a guy so the first i think the first guy you meet is the is the guy letting underage girls into drinks so he can like have sex with them i think um so that's your first guy slimeball we're gonna call that guy slimeball he has a name i don't care he is slimeball yeah. The next the next character we meet, um, I no, I, I I believe he manages. I believe Dalton manages to get to the bar and meets. Uh, we're gonna call her horny waitress, because literally her only. I think her <laughs> only job in this film is to be horny, and like occasionally be horny at specific moments where it moves the plot along, or gives us some exposition. She's the. <laughs> she she's also the sings. She also sings. She does. She does sing. Yes. But oh, we have we haven't gotten to Jeff fucking Healy yet. Oh, I'll no. fucking We're I'll gonna. fucking get to <laughs> Jeff fucking Healy. Don't you don't you worry about that shit. So horny waitress is like, oh my god, you're Dalton. You know the professional bouncer boss that is America renowned across the country, halfway across the country from New York. I know your name so well. I know we know your reputation precedes you. And if you think I'm joking about this, she goes and tells another one of the bouncers at the bar, we're going to call him Jimmy Olsen because he's basically the Jimmy Olsen to Dalton Superman. And Jimmy Olsen goes running around the bar telling all of the other people that Dalton is in the fucking building. And like he is literally, he is telling people this as if his dad like turned out to be Superman and also married Princess Diana, who was also somehow also Superman. And she was like, they were both coming to the bar to like give him a, a solid gold A report card he was supposed to fucking earn. It is, it is amazing how much this Jimmy Olsen guy is like really impressed with Dalton because he goes and tells Slimeball. Uh, he goes and tells I m- one of my personal favorite bouncer tritagonists, which is Sleepy Chubby Guy. <laughs> sleepy, sleepy Chubby Guy is sleepy, he's chubby, and his hair is confrontationally 80s. Like, it is <laughs> teased within an inch of its fucking life. 
but also he has a beard, but it's missing the mustache. It's Sleepy Chubby Guy is weird. I love him. And he is, he wakes up from being Sleepy Chubby and he is, he is not impressed, but he, but, and then we get to Terry Funk, who character, I actually know Terry Funk's character's name is Morgan in this, mm. in this movie. And I know this because Dalton actually says, Morgan, you're, you're gone. You don't have the right temperament for this job. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, Terry Funk then proceeds for the rest of the film and all of the moments before this happens to exude that temperament. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He goes about proving <laughs> Dalton right by literally joining Team Evil. Yeah. Like, like, I don't know what else to call it. He joins the bad guys to prove he has the right temperament. <laughs> <laughs> that temperament is breaking bottles of trampooey. <laughs> yeah. Like um we um Jimmy Olsen goes and tells Slimeball. Um uh Dalton notices a waitress selling cocaine while waitressing. This whole time, this whole time, people are fighting, slamming beer bottles into the chicken wire fence set up around Jeff Healy. Okay, here we are. I'm so glad we're here. It can't be a good honky talk unless you got a chicken wire fence around the stage. Yes, it, there is a. You're you were a thousand percent correct. There yeah. is a chicken wire. There is a chicken wire cage around the stage. Jeff Healy, who is a blind Canadian blues musician, I'll repeat that. <laughs> blind Canadian blues musician is getting broken beer bottles thrown at him. At one point, a man sells the right to feel his wife's new fake tits to two yokels. <laughs> and or I know too. Yeah, and I know, I know, I know. You're like, did he did 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 this person that Wonder Boy asked to help him do a podcast just fall downstairs while taking mescaline while trying to make a sentence <laughs> no i didn't a man tells two yokels that for 20 bucks he can one of them what one of the two yokels can squeeze his wife's <laughs> new artificial breasts now there are two things about this. One, for as disgusting as this scene is, and it is, yes, it actually sets up a pretty hilarious punchline because the guy does begin feeling up the 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 aforementioned fake tid and begins laughing hysterically. And the guy who sold it says, "You know what? Is, you know, isn't it amazing? Like, what's so funny?" And Finally, the yoga reveals, I don't have 20 bucks. <laughs> At which point a fight breaks out. Bar fight karate. And we are <laughs> we are now officially dick deep in bar fight karate town. <laughs> and we're going to be there for the next 15 the fucking minutes. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. That is a large amount of time to spend in your film. Not not moving the plot forward or explaining anything. Fuck you, bar fight karate. 
Also, before we move too far away from from fake titty salesman, do you know who played aforementioned fake titty salesman? No, I do not. His name is Chris Lotta. Okay, who you will who you would know as the voice of Starscream and Cobra Commander. Oh my god, <laughs> that is that is real. I don't know what uh, to tell you other than the fact that the movie Roadhouse was directed by a man named Rowdy. Yep. And like, shot, and so, this is a good point also, real quick, and shot by fuck, Dean fucking Cundy. Oh, yeah. Oh, Dean Cundy, who one of, one of the one of the greatest unsung heroes of, like, modern film. Oh, yeah. We talked about him back when we talked about The Thing, obviously, and all the yeah, things that he's gone yeah. on to do since then. But it, I love the fact that we can talk about The Thing and Roadhouse on this show, and they both have the <laughs> same DP. <laughs> See, well, I mean, we we like that's because you and I expect a certain level of quality. Oh, of a, a level a level of quality you can only get with Cundy. I need the lighting to be just right whenever all the men are watching yeah. Patrick Swayze yeah. do if shirtless I, Tai Chi. Yeah, if I am looking at a fake titty or I am looking at a gooey dog monster, I want that lighting to be just right. And for that, <laughs> you need Cundy. <laughs> the, uh, but there is there is just out and out bar fight karate. Um, one of the best parts is like just to give you some highlights from from aforementioned bar fight karate. Um, earlier, uh, when Dalton introduced himself, there was a thoroughly unimpressed uh, blonde woman, and when she sees him bar fight karate, she becomes very impressed, uh, sexually, because. <laughs> everyone knows that attraction is based on your ability to bar fight karate now she is separate from horny waitress you need to keep that in mind she's also separate from our uh, our eventual female lead so just please keep that in mind as well there's a lot of horny lady balls to keep in the air so just just bear with me okay yeah so also there's one guy at the bar who just keeps chortling annoyingly whenever somebody takes damage from bar fight karate so horny waitress i think comes up and just smashes him with like very <laughs> very dangerous broken glass <laughs> she hits him with a tray yeah just <laughs> yeah just there, there. Like I, I haven't, I haven't had to, I haven't had to hold uh, like, uh, like a, like a drink tray in many years. But that's got to be like twenty pounds worth of glass of beer. Mm. <laughs> so uh, that man's probably dead. Uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, at one point, uh, the horny blonde who is not horny waitress, nor is she our female, our horny female lead, um makes makes googly eyes at Dalton and another person completely separate from the situation makes googly eyes at her which pisses Terry Funk off so much that it's just bar fight karate a clock for this <laughs> motherfucker <laughs> now <laughs> I would like to tell you that this bar fight karate adds up to something but I can't because it doesn't. We're moving on to the next scene. Yep. <laughs> so Dalton Dalton uh goes and buys a piece of shit car. 
Um, I'm not sure what it is. It looks like a Dodge. It's 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 a piece of shit. And he also buys a bunch of tires for it. And then he goes and rents out what is an amazing loft apartment that a guy just has in a barn mm-hmm. on a on a lake. And he says he has to charge money for it or the Presbyterians would be angry at him. <laughs> if there is not a more Southern fucking phrase I, yeah, I, in I, this like, film than that, I swear to fucking God. I wasn't sure that that they had researched Jasper, Missouri until that line delivery. Yeah. And at that point, yes, somebody had spent some time in Missouri. So, um, (laughs) Dalton wakes up in the morning in his, what these days would be a $4,000 a month loft apartment in a barn in Jasper, Missouri on a lake the night before he's reading what I think is Nietzsche or Nietzsche. (laughs) I'm not a thousand percent sure on that. It might be Hobbes. I'm again. It's it's it, it's fancy. Whatever he's reading is fancy. Yeah. And he happens to look across across the way, and notice that the mansion across the lake from a, a, a prospector beard man, um, Emmett. It, Emmett. Oh god, <laughs> Emmett's fucking great. There are so many great characters in this movie. <laughs> Um, but there's just a there's just an orgy pool party just happening over there, and this yep. is after we are introduced to the man who lives there, Brad Wesley, who appears by fucking helicopter. Oh, Brad Wesley, Brad fucking Wesley, and look, Roadhouse knows its business. It knows that you need to hate its its villains, and you need to hate them fast. And you're going to hate Brad Wesley before you see him. You see his helicopter and mansion and pool orgies. You hate Brad Wesley because when the first time you actually see him, he is listening to the worst crooner music I've ever heard in my fucking life while refusing to maintain lanes going 60 miles an hour on a two lane. Yeah. Like it's just a perfect encapsulation of like this person who feels untouchable. Yes. Yeah, he is he is and he is we are going to find out the, you know, the the small business kingpin magnate of Jasper, Missouri. Yeah. Um, and, and slowly this film unfolds into an anti-capitalist yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> sort of manifesto well, in a way. And, and we'll get to the ending, but they're, they're also small business owners and stuff. So it's like, it's weirdly like it's anti-conglomerate or like anti-corporate. It's anti-corporate, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's weird. It's like, it's anti-super rich, but it's not, it's, 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 it's weird. It's, it's not anti like trade, it's not like anti com actually this is good that's a good way to put it. It's not anti-commerce, but it is sort of like vaguely anti-capitalist. <laughs> it's what you get out of Roadhouse. Bar fight karate and anti-capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Also, Patrick Swayze's ass was carved out of marble in 1981. Oh yes. By by the ghost of a French statue maker. Like <laughs> the um how so you actually you see you see Patrick Swayze's ass in this movie 
actually right around the time we're talking about because horny waitress comes to wake him up in his loft barn and she literally literally orgasms at the sight of Patrick Swayze's ass. I am not making this up. I checked the tape three times. That is what <laughs> fucking happened. <laughs> Brian will call me a liar right now if I am wrong, but I am oh, fucking not. She is physically taken aback at the sight of this man's ass. Yeah. She, and how like, pristine it is. In D&D terms, she takes 3D6 damage to the crotch. Yeah. Like psychic damage. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's it might just it might be spiritual damage. Like it might yeah. like <laughs> it's it's amazing. There's something I need to tell you, uh, dear listener. Something you may not be ready to know. But everything we've just gone over is the first 25 minutes of fucking Roadhouse. <laughs> got an hour and a half to go <laughs> the um during during the process of uh of his first night working uh after he has thrown out terry funk's morgan and and coke waitress uh there uh uh dalton then uh you know in between being too cool uh, to be interested in all of the ladies that are horny for him and all the men who are impressed by him slash intimidated by him. Uh, Dalton manages to fire uh, both Slimeball guy, who I'm pretty sure was was banging like teenagers. It's it's gross. Um, yeah, it's not clearly stated, but there are people that are getting in without having their ID checked. Yeah, and he's definitely banging in the storeroom. Yeah, yeah, it's it's no good. It is. Yeah. Um. The um. Uh, he also he also fires, um, uh, the the one of the main um bartenders who is skimming from the till. Now this, uh, <laughs> uh thirty <laughs> minutes into our film, is going to be the inciting incident. Yes. Because because the the little the little scuzzball who uh, who he fires is the nephew of of Brad Wesley, and the guy who who we meet skimming around traffic and shaking down like the local auto parts store for protection money. Mm-hmm. So. You know, Dalton isn't happy about seeing that, but he's going to go off and do some lakeside Tai Chi. And, you know, he's going to try and cool off and get very sweaty and very shirtless. And we are only 35 minutes in. And what is definitely the most homoerotic scene in this in this hyper masculine film. Yeah, which is (laughs) that's a high bar to cross. And we haven't even gotten to one of the most memorable lines in the movie yet. That also speaks to that. What are you talking about? It's my way. Or the highway? Or, nope. Are you talking about pain don't hurt? Nope. <laughs> What's the um let me know you'll, let me let me know when we get there. You'll know when we get there. Oh well, I think I know which one it is. I think so you we're, do we're, too. Not, we're not there yet. Um <laughs> by by the way, both Emmett and Brad Wesley see Patrick Swayze doing shirtless Tai Chi. And Emmett is Emmett the farmer is confused by it. But Brad Wesley is definitely intimidated by it. 
He's definitely into it also. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Looks he's, like. he's sitting on his he's sitting on his three-wheeler feeling very confused about his feelings. Yeah. Um so we go and we we go back to the the little the little uh, I don't know what his nephew's name is. I'm going to call him Scooter. Um Scooter has brought some brought some of Brad Wesley's henchmen with him to tell to tell the the boss Tillman and Dalton that he's getting his job back whether Dalton likes it or not. And he's brought he's brought two uh two henchmen, one of whom has like male pattern baldness and like a leisure suit jacket and the other one I need to get into this. The other one is named Tinker and Tinker is going to come up during the course of this film more than once so you just need to get comfortable with Tinker. Tinker is a man who is about five foot eight and a, probably just guesstimating probably about probably about 280 to 300 pounds and he has chosen as his attire a khaki button-up shirt that he has sweated through pretty much everywhere a uh a trucker cap uh acid wash jeans and suspenders that's a man after your own heart there, Hollis. I I I frankly am embarrassed and ashamed that I am not wearing that exact ensemble at this very moment. <laughs> Be- and let me tell you, you might underestimate Tinker because he's uh he's short and fat and Seems to be dressed for a job interview at a closed Stuckies, <laughs> but uh, so uh, Scooter, the the nephew, pulls a knife on Dalton, and he is not impressed. It, it takes about three swipes and three super cool Dalton dodges before he actually puts his fists up. And we're not talking about just any knife. Scooter's got like a full on Bowie knife. Yeah, that's a big sucker. Yeah, it's it's basically a sword, but don't worry, because Scooter gets kicked through a window. Uh, s- sleepy chubby guy is like, "Uh oh, there's a fight upstairs." Tinker actually takes a chunk out of Dalton with a knife, <laughs> manages to punch Tillman unconscious, gets in another couple good hits on Dalton. Tinker knocks another bodyguard out, kicks him in the balls. <laughs> Only goes down when he's double teamed. Now we're we're catching up with male pattern baldness guy getting absolutely bodied by Dalton. Like it's yeah. not even fair. Like Dalton, I, I'm pretty sure could have beaten this man asleep. The um by the way, when the when the gang of other bodyguards beats Tinker, they beat him, they defeat him, restrain him, and then punch him in the nutsack. Because you're watching Roadhouse, motherfucker. <laughs> this film, this film does not busy you with justice. It's too busy bar fight karateing. <laughs> now I understand what you're thinking. We probably just went through another three or four minutes of bar fight karate night. No, we went through about six, but shut up. That's not important. Because we're going to the hospital now, and we're going to meet our female lead, who who is going to be Dalton's doctor. This is where Dalton brings up his own file, his own medical file that he brings with him everywhere. <laughs> uh, this is this is Dr. Dr. Clay, Doc Clay, um, 
uh, played by, I believe, Kelly Lynch. Yes. And she is a, like, she comes off as, like, not impressed by Dalton until, like, it happens to come up that he was, <laughs> he has a degree in philosophy from NYU. <laughs> Also, the fact that he stitched up his own arm wound so cleanly. And when she asks, oh, you must like pain, huh? He says to her, pain don't hurt. <laughs> yeah, because he refuses the painkiller. He refuses yep. the numbing agent. He's stapling his fucking like, rib wound yeah. shut. While she's putting his abdomen back together <laughs> with medical staples. Pain don't hurt. Pain don't hurt. I learned that in my philosophy degree from NYU that I have. <laughs> I read that I, reading Sir Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, I got that between Tai Chi lessons <laughs> and spin kicks. <laughs> the uh, She's not impressed with his job when she's at the Double Deuce, but he tells her to swing by. The uh, Later on, Brad Wesley uh, is is talking to his henchmen about how they managed to fail to get uh, uh, to get Scooter his job back, and here we meet Brad Wesley's main henchman, Jimmy. Yes, uh, Jimmy. I'm I'm trying to. I want I want to try and explain what Jimmy looks like to you. Jimmy looks like Jimmy looks like if if Vegeta played in ZZ Top. <laughs> but still didn't have a beard. No, no beard. No beard. He he yeah. is he is he is far too quietly angry to have a beard. This they is would... West Texas Vegeta. Yeah, this is this is West Texas 80s teased hair Vegeta. Yeah. Which by the way, Brad again, Brad Wesley proves his his villainous chops not by punishing his nephew, but by punishing comb over henchmen. Like male pattern boldness henchman who did nothing but like tried to help. The um, although I do want to point out here that Brad Wesley does not assault Tinker because everyone loves Tinker. Yes, everyone loves Tinker. Literally, Brad Wesley's like, "Who is responsible for this?" And Tinker's like, uh, I, "I am boss. I'm sorry." He's like, "No, not you, Tinker. You're a good boy." <laughs> and then just beats up male pattern boldness guy. The uh, Dalton finds out that uh, that more more businesses in town are getting shaken down even more for protection from Brad Wesley, and this is where in the film we meet Wade Garrett. Ugh. Now, you might remember Wade Garrett came up earlier in the film when Dalton said he was the best, and Tillman said Wade Garrett's getting old. The uh, Wade Garrett is currently working at a strip club and he is played by Sam Elliott. And when I say he is played by, I mean that Sam Elliott is Wade fucking Garrett. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to picture Sam Elliott at his most eighties. Like we are talking like shoulder length, sway back hair. That's fi- salt and pepper in it too. Oh Yeah. Uh, don't yeah. forget! Don't forget that ruggedly handsome five o'clock shadow. Oh yeah. Let me let me put it to you this way: Wade Garrett is working in a titty bar, and manages to be the most fuckable person in the entire fucking shot. By <laughs> by, I'm ta- I'm talking a country mile. Yes. The um 
But the movie want the movie does take at least three minutes of your time to let you know that Wade Garrett rules. He can get Marines to calm down, and all strippers love him. <laughs> and that is literally all you need to know about Wade Garrett. Oh, he also he has kind of a limp in his leg. That's, but you know he's going to be far too busy later kicking ass for that to come up. So we'll tell you about it right now. But he he and Dalton have a conversation where. Dalton, they they share some exposition, but mainly there's just a fight going on. There is, of course, more bar fight karate going on behind Wade Garrett, and he has to go take care of it. The, um, because this movie will put bar fight karate literally anywhere you let it. If you take your eye off this film for a second, if you blink, you're coming back to bar fight karate. The, um, I think this is where I, I think after that we get the uh, the horny waitress's big musical number. And also, I need you to try your best to remember the horny blonde we mentioned previously. I know there have been a lot of horny women we've talked about who've been horny for Dalton. I know it's been very difficult. I know you probably had to take notes. You were you were a really good listener. I very much appreciate it. But at this point, horny blonde tries to hit on Dalton, and he's not interested. And Jimmy. Brad Wesley's main henchman is there. So now, now, of course, all the little cogs are coming together. But Dalton's Dalton's far too cool to care about all that. So <laughs> he goes back to by the way, whenever Dalton is in the is in the bar doing his job, he always is drinking coffee at the bar. Just black coffee. Yep. It's black coffee just hanging out. Now keeping an eye on things. <laughs> yeah, just you know, just Keeping, uh, keeping his head on a swivel. Now, once Horny Blonde and Jimmy have left the party is when Jimmy looks over at a real, swear to God, real life monster truck that is full of bad guys <laughs> and gives them the nod, which lets the bad guys know that it's time to go into the double deuce and make some fucking noise. Yes. Which is very upsetting because Tired because sleepy chubby guy is trying to bond with with Dalton, and somebody is coming to make it trouble. And we know we know by the way the the bad guys are here to make trouble because one of them attached to his cowboy boot has a knife. He's got that knife boot going. He's got the boot knife. Yes. And Dalton is immediately offended that this piece of shit would try to walk into his bar with a boot knife. So he gathers. All of his forces. Jimmy Olsen boy, Sleepy Chubby, the guy you haven't seen before that was in the background once. He gets all the greats. And <laughs> Boot Knife Guy tries to attack Dalton and he immediately twists his ankle and drags him outside <laughs> because the movie has yet to have a good amount of bar fight karate outside. You're forgetting so now, one of the best lines in the movie, too, from the scene. I'm sorry, <laughs> like, please, lay it all, on me. All those guys are, like, saying, like, telling Dalton, we're just here to have fun. It's like, you're too stupid to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely up there with my way of the highway. <laughs> like, the, and the great thing about this outdoor bar fight karate, which I know what you're thinking. How can it be bar fight karate if it's outside? Shut the fuck up. The um everyone gets a chance to shine. Jimmy Olsen boy, Sleepy Chubby actually does a, a remarkable job here. The um but Dalton, of course, uses his superior bar fight kung fu, defeats Boot Knife Man, and everyone has bonded. Now, waiting in the wings, 
is our doctor wearing wearing a classic denim gown or gingham i'm sorry gingham it's a gingham dress i think <laughs> and she has seen some of this bar fight karate go down and it is very clear that she is impressed mm-hmm. the uh but rather than staying at the double deuce uh the doctor and dalton go off to a diner to bond and talk over coffee because Dalton certainly hasn't had enough coffee yet. <laughs> the um, By the way, the movie goes out of its way to show you that Dalton, the guy doing Tai Chi and with muscles so well-defined, like when they bleed, you can see them poking through his skin that he also will doesn't mind taking time out of his day to have a Marlboro cigarette. Yep. <laughs> the um, old classic. Now I know what you're. I, I know what you're probably going to ask. I know what you're probably thinking. What do these two have to talk about at this diner? I'm not going to fucking tell you because it's not important. If you don't understand how unimportant the conversation they're having at this diner is in the movie Roadhouse, after we have spoken about it for so long, I do not know what the fuck to tell you. <laughs> the fact. The point is, the f- like. The, the the thing that matters is they go back they go back to Dalton's car, which is smashed up. This is why he buys shitty cars, by the way. This is what we find out. People keep smashing up his car in the parking lot. <laughs> There's just a straight up somebody ripped a stop sign out of the ground <laughs> and threw it through his fucking back window. <laughs> like, it's just the most ludicrous, it's the most ludicrous visual. It's it's beautiful. Like they so Tinker and uh Baldman take take Dalton to meet Brad Wesley. And this is where we find out that Horry Blonde is Brad Wesley's current girlfriend and that he beats her because you need to know even more that Brad Wesley's Brad Wesley is the biggest piece of shit in the universe. Brad Wesley's only redeeming quality is that he likes Tinker. And uh, who doesn't? Like Tinker, by the way, um, has like I, I remember this distinctly. He no longer is wearing his sweat through khaki shirt. He's changed to a black shirt, uh, but he is wearing a khaki vest. Don't you fucking worry about that. There's some khaki on that man at all times. Yeah. At every moment, there is khaki on his chest and there's acid wash on his ass because this man knows what the fuck fashion is. <laughs> so Brad Wesley does just is basically a capitalist piece of shit. To, to Dalton and explains how he runs the town, how he keeps order, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Dalton at every moment is conveying with his eyes just how much he wants to spin kick this guy, but he's too cool to. <laughs> anyway, I know that was a lot of scenes that did not have any horniness or bar fight karate. I'm sorry. Roadhouse is sorry. Guess what? We're back at the fucking double deuce. Well, there's one key thing about the Brad Wesley scene that we need to point out, though, is that this is the first time where you get a hint of Dalton's backstory a bit because Brad Wesley knows about what happened in Memphis. Oh, my God. You're right. How could I forget about fucking Memphis? Yeah. Listen, listen here. I know what you're thinking. We know all we need to know about Dalton. He spin kicks. He can sew himself up. (laughs) He has a degree in philosophy from NYU. Here's what the fuck you don't know, listener. How you ignorant piece of shit. Here's what you don't know. Dalton 
tore a man's throat out in Memphis. <laughs> in self-defense. In, it, it was self-defense, but it clearly haunts Dalton, who is so good at ass-kicking. He knows he should have been able to get out of that situation with some sort of spin-kick-related activity that didn't have to result in a man dying. <laughs> He's just too aggressive, and Brad Wesley knows this. Yeah, uh, this is so now the parts are starting to come together. This is why Dalton isn't hurt by pain and says pain don't hurt because he knows what really hurts is the regret of taking a life from this earth. This is why Dalton says it's my way or the highway. He has he has to maintain control. What happens if he loses it again? Someone could die. His spin kicks are too powerful to not be contained. <laughs> Suddenly we understand more about Dalton than maybe we even know about our fucking selves. Mm. See, uh, now we've returned to the double deuce and things are looking nice. Mr. Tillman has clearly made some upgrades there. There's no longer a chicken wire cage around poor Mr. Jeff Healy, who I will remind you is a blind Canadian blues all-star. He's a fucking machine. He is amazing. Also, he knows Dalton. They're old friends. And Jeff Healy says to him that the double deuce is a bigger shithole than, quote, that one we were in in Toledo. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened in Toledo, but it couldn't have been worse than Memphis, could it? We don't know. We'll never know. No, we won't. Also, what a bad rap on Toledo. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> listen, 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 Jeff Healy shoots straight. If he calls Toledo a shithole, I believe him. I'm not disagreeing with Jeff Healy or like refuting what he says, but also Toledo, like maybe that one place in, we'll say that one place in Toledo was a shithole. <laughs> Either way, uh, this is this is the point in the movie where we have another thing referenced because Keith David shows up as a background bartender who replaced Scooter. God, a criminally underused Keith David in this film, mind you. I'm going to say... He does not throw one spin kick. Yeah, I'm going to say if Roadhouse has one, a single flaw, it's that we never see Keith David spin kick. Yeah. But everyone is happy, patting Dalton on the back for a job well done. He goes outside, though, because some things are just more important. He goes to meet Doc Clay, and this is where we start to realize that Horny Blonde might be Brad Wesley's current girlfriend, but Doc Clay, I believe they went over in the in the the diner scene that I told you not to worry about. Shut up. Um, but Doc Clay was Brad Wesley's ex squeeze. Yes, and also she is the the niece, I believe, of Red, the auto parts shop owner. The um, uh, and also I believe she's a friend of Emmett. Who who is the guy that was getting like janked on by the fucking Presbyterians? Yeah, and also it should like, be noted that like you you described her as as Brad Wesley's former squeeze. Uh, that is a one way road, by the way. That is you're Brad right, you're Wesley right. is like into this lady, and she has no nothing. She but does not have it for that man, which makes the next scene amazing. It makes it amazing because what happens here is that. Uh, uh, Doc Clay, uh, Elizabeth, Liz to her friends, uh, goes back to the barn loft with Dalton, uh, who turns on an old timey radio for them to, to try and enjoy some tunes to. There's some back and forth, there's some patter, they're getting comfortable. And 
one thing leads to another as as it is wont to do and the two begin it's you know it's a sex scene but it is <laughs> it's also a scene that like so basically Dalton carry fucks like he picks up the doctor and it's clear that like somewhere in the lifting they are mid coitus but yeah. then we then we cut to um both her being naked from the back and Dalton being naked from the back sitting out in the moonlight covered by a little by 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 a small amount of sheets yep which i will say about roadhouse equal opportunity when it comes to bare asses male female it's here for it Roadhouse just wants you to look at a naked ass, and if you have a preference on gender, you sort that out your fucking self. Roadhouse is just here to <laughs> deliver the bare ass to you. Yes. So, Dalton and the doctor uh, decide that that however much fucking they have done in the in the jump cut is simply not enough fucking. <laughs> so they go out to the the roof of the barn to fuck in the moonlight, which. I, I'm pretty sure Dalton has to fuck in the moonlight, like because I'm pretty sure he is part spin kick werewolf. <laughs> they uh, they also talk about feelings and how much you know how much Dalton may or may not regret you know you know life decisions he's made. Uh, Doctor Cox herself also has some some trepidations. They uh, they share some human moments, but uh, uh, it's moon it's moonlight fuck o'clock, and they're both making that train. <laughs> But from across the lake, from across the lake, we see Brad Wesley sitting in a slowly rocking rocking chair, <laughs> upsetly watching Dalton. Um, I, I, Dalton up, Doctor Cox, yep. Doctor Clay, like, <laughs> and and angrily smoke a cigar. So uh, you know, we know we know our hero's in trouble now because he is he is he is just cucked Brad the incel Wesley. <laughs> the um, and the like <laughs> Emmett tells him it's gonna be some bad news, but uh don't you worry about that because there's help coming. And do you know who's coming down the pipe for Dalton? Fucking Wade. Wade fucking Garrett. Yeah. Shows up on an unwashed Harley like a fucking boss with a bedroll on back because he lives on his bike. The and he just is immediately the coolest motherfucker. He his his intro into the scene is is precipitated by Brad Wesley's henchman, and of course Tinker is there. Of course I know what he's wearing. It's a red polo, <laughs> under red suspenders. The man can clash as much as he wants because he fucking wants to. Yes. Also, this is the first time we see Morgan as part yeah, of Yeah, this is the, the first time we've seen Terry Funk come back, and there's actually, there's a guy there who's actually larger than Terry Funk who just spends his entire film career in Roadhouse getting the shit obliterated out of him. Yes. 
but Wade Garrett is not in the double deuce not for like a minute before he is immediately in bar fight karate outside. Yeah, yeah immediately. <laughs> like Wade Garrett, and he doesn't like run to Dalton's aid. He casually walks outside and, and sees Terry Funk tenderizing Dalton's kidneys. And Terry Funk tells him to fight the giant. And the giant looks like he's ready to fight Wade Garrett. And the giant, in fact, calls Wade Garrett dickless. And Wade <laughs> Garrett answers this insult by punching the giant in the dick hard enough to bend steel. <laughs> now, my boy Tinker steps to Wade Garrett, but frankly, no amount of adorableness from Tinker is going to stop Wade Garrett from fucking obliterating the lot of them. <laughs> The um, like he goes through male pattern ball this guy and Terry Funk like they were made of crepe paper, and all of the rest of the Double Deuce crew come out in time to watch Dalton and Wade Garrett hug. <laughs> when, and of course the 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 crew wants to know who this who this this tall, mysterious, ruggedly handsome man is that Dalton is hugging, and Jeff fucking Healy. The, the the all-star secret sauce to this film says that's Wade Garrett and everyone loses their fucking minds. <laughs> They're like, holy shit, it's Wade Garrett. Because Roadhouse happens in a dimension where professional bouncers are the only celebrities allowed to exist. <laughs> It's such a wild world that this it movie is, is built for itself. It's 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 amazing. It's beautiful. So <laughs> Dalton and Wade Garrett go to have beers, but of course they pick up Dr. Clay on the way. And uh Wade Garrett spends the next two to three hours, it feels like, because it's such a perfect moment, you want to live in it forever, talking in his beautiful Sam Elliott voice and showing off his 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 hip scar that he has to unbutton his fly for and you watching the scene you need to be careful because you might go through puberty again yep just the, the tiniest glimpse of sam, sam elliott's yes yeah just the just, just just the slightest <laughs> glimpse of sam's elliott like <laughs> the and Dr. Clay is charmed the f to fuck and back by Wade Garrett. Who wouldn't be? She, in fact, dances with him in the diner they go to after beers and cigarettes because <laughs> Dalton is too busy brooding. And Wade Garrett's not going to let a lady go undanced within a diner. Are you fucking an idiot? He's Wade Garrett. Dalton is actually sleepy. Wade Garrett is not because Wade Garrett exists on like cocaine and the fumes from a Harley. The uh, but now now it's time to get down to business. How are we going to stop Brad Wesley from being Brad Wesley? Because it turns out that Wesley has raised the stakes and blown up Red's auto parts store. Yeah. Which uh, you you will notice at this point in the film is across from the double deuce, even though 
I don't think we established before this moment that Reds was that close to the double deuce. <laughs> I think you see the double deuce in like some shots outside of it earlier in the film. Like you can relatively tell how close they are to one another. But still, it's not you would not think that the establishments would be as close as they are. The um, Brad Wesley, who is inside the double deuce this whole time, uh, makes it clear that he was the one responsible for what happened to Reds. Yeah. Dal- Dalton looks furious, but Brad Wesley has an ace up his sleeve, and that's the fact that motherfucking Tinker is knee- is is elbowed up against the bar, ready to rock and roll at a moment's notice. And I know, I know, you're thinking there's no way that Hollis took notes on what Tanker is wearing scene to scene. Motherfucker, he is in cuffed <laughs> jeans, a caterpillar hat, and a red and gray flannel shirt. Fucking check the film. <laughs> now, back to the important things, because Brad Wesley, to show off how much he owns this town, and to show off how much he can get away with, um, uh, allows his uh, horny blonde girlfriend, question mark, to begin provocatively dancing, uh, which Dalton is made upset by. Wade Garrett is so turned on that he puts his hair up in a little, in like a little ponytail, but not a complete ponytail. And it is... I think the hottest Sam Elliott has ever been. I I will agree with you on that. The um the I don't remember how long because of course Horny Blonde Lady is dancing to Jeff Healy's uh music because what else would she be dancing to? Um and I don't know how long the stripping goes on, but it's an uncomfortable amount of time. Yeah, it's multiple minutes. <laughs> And it's it's it is deeply uncomfortable to watch. I had to like avert my eyes multiple yeah. times during the scene watching yeah. it back for the show. I I want you to think about what I what what I have said and what we have talked about the content of Roadhouse being, and this might be Roadhouse at its most misogynistic. Yeah, and that is goddamn saying something. The uh, by the way, the person who agrees with us the most on the on the, the the distastefulness of this stripping is Dalton. Yeah, who is just thoroughly unimpressed this whole time. The um, but uh, I do believe at one point she manages to make out with uh, or to at least like kiss Dalton a little bit, which Brad Wesley is clearly upset about. The uh. But this precipitates none other than Jimmy walking into the scene. Now, Wade Garrett has yet to meet Jimmy and gives him the most unimpressed look, even though Jimmy is dressed head to toe in denim. It is, it is, it's not a full Canadian tuxedo. But it's, but it's Canadian, enough. Yeah, it's a Canadian casual tuxedo. Yeah. And Brad Wesley, since his girlfriend was not allowed to continue stripping, has asked Jimmy to perform a what I can only describe as a bow staff attack dance with a pool cue. 
Dalton trying to keep the situation under control because let's face it, at this point, it's it's the bar karate version of Chernobyl. It is an accident waiting to happen. Uh, Dalton sends in his men, uh, which consists of Jimmy Olsen, uh, sleepy, sleepy chubby guy, and the third one. And they are just obliterated by Jimmy outright. It's it's no contest. The um, This has upset enough people around uh, Wade Garrett for them to just start trying to fight Wade Garrett, which is sort of like trying to fight your own fear of mortality. It's not going to go well for you. <laughs> The um and I I want to th- I want to welcome all of you back. I know it has been a long and arduous seventeen to eighteen minute break, but we are back in bar fight karate town. <laughs> Jimmy calls out Wade Garrett, and it's an immediate karate off. The um like Wade Garrett is is clearly more of a classically trained kind of boxer. He he's focusing on the shoulders and and arms. Uh, elbows, hands. Jimmy is is much more of a mixed, um, uh, you know, mixed martial arts type of guy. The um now does he full spin kick? Unfortunately, he does not. There's some good, uh, you know, there's some good kicks in there, some very high kicks. No spin kicks yet, and that's the, why Jimmy um, sucks. Yeah, this is this is going to be ultimately be Jimmy's downfall. He starts to get the better of Wade Garrett. However, Dalton moves to intercept. Now, now Jimmy's now Jimmy's in real trouble because he's got Wade Garrett and Dalton to worry about. But Brad Wesley, being a piece of shit, fires a gun into the air and tells him to stop fighting. Because Brad Wesley cannot cannot account or acquit for him uh, acquit acquit himself in bar fight karate. He simply he is simply not built for it. So he calls off he calls off his henchmen who who just Vanish into the vanish into the ether, I guess. <clears throat> Wade Garrett and Dalton hug because they have gone through bar fight karate, which to them is just another Tuesday. The <laughs> now, I know you're. I know. I know. I know. I know. We said this movie is weirdly anti-capitalist, and this is kind of where we get to it because. Dalton and the doctor and Red call together all of the other like small business owners and like like the, the important people of the town, right? Mm-hmm. And they tell him like, "Hey, Brad Wesley's the problem. We got to stop him." And they're like, "Look, he's 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 too much of a slimy '80s movie villain. We're never going to stop him." <laughs> they're all too afraid of him. I mean, wouldn't you be? Have you seen? Have you seen the bar fight karate men he he, he has at his command? He I has have. like he has like eight of them and Tinker. <laughs> the, um, like you ex- you expect me to cross swords with Tinker? I would I'd sooner cut off my own hand. The um now I know we we are not we are less than 10 minutes away from a whole ass auto parts store exploding. But if you thought that was the end to the automotive based violence, boy, howdy, are you fucking wrong? Damn right. Enter Bigfoot seven. That's not a joke. Nope. The, the monster truck Chekhov's monster truck, because we saw this monster truck earlier. Um, Brad Wesley has heard that the 
the auto the auto store the Ford dealer is has been has been plotting against him. So he sends his monster truck into his his car lot to drive over this man's cars, destroy his showroom. The monster truck drives through the showroom, both sides, destroying all the cars. In broad daylight in front of a crowd of town folks. Not a cop in sight, which <laughs> it's Jasper, Missouri, so I guess that makes sense. To be fair, we haven't seen a cop this entire movie, by the way. No, no. Why would you? This is this is not a this the, the world of Roadhouse is not a world ruled by law. It is a world ruled by bar fight karate and monster <laughs> trucks. And it's amazing, and I want to live there. The um, like it is, it is clear now that something must be done. But Dalton is still reluctant, for he knows that that losing control could mean, you know, could could mean the end of of the of the peace of his mind. But this is only the beginning, because these motherfuckers burned down Emmett's house. Mm. They they basically bomb it. I mean, yeah, there's multiple like, explosions. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's like a it's like a full on firebomb. Emmett <clears throat> Emmett is saved, but he's saved while wearing old timey red feety pajamas. <laughs> so unfortunately his dignity is not saved. He he is alive but at what cost? Yes. And of the, course, um, this moment is what pushes Dalton past that oh, point. Oh, it pushes him over the edge because we yes. immediately find out who firebombed his house. For it was Jimmy on a dirt bike. <laughs> and Jimmy begins escaping on the dirt bike, but don't you fucking worry because Dalton outruns the dirt bike and tackles him off of it. <laughs> and then we have Lake Beach fight. Now we've got Lake Beach fight. You're goddamn right. We've got Lake Beach fight. Under the fucking moonlight. Now we are quickly approaching the line that Wonder Boy brought up earlier. And I want you to know that the the non-barf, it's still bar fight karate, but they're just doing it on a lake beach. It's lake beach karate. Uh, and there's no sand, but my but there's a little bit of sand. My point is, it's Lake Beach Karate. It's amazing, and it's it's better than Duel of the Fates in the Phantom Menace. And then we we come to the moment where it looks like Jimmy is is getting the upper hand on Dalton, but Dalton is pulling out the stops now because it's spin kick o'clock. Unfortunately, Jimmy also knows spin kicks. <laughs> and finally decides to bust him out here. Finally, now there are there are there is no more hiding the spin kick affinities. The uh Jimmy gets like it is uh, like I, I am not kidding. It is it is amazing. Jimmy gets the upper hand and then says the line. Do you want to you want to take this one? I used to fuck guys like you in prison. 
after delivering that line, <laughs> you would think a line like that would cause Dalton to vanish in a puff of smoke. <laughs> but no, Jimmy continues to try and, mur- and and Lake Beach karate murder Dalton. And unfortunately, Dalton is simply pushed too far. <laughs> he using a tree and his Tai Chi yoga and all of his spin kicks (laughs) and I mean all his fucking spin kicks manages to come close to defeating Jimmy but Jimmy the coward pulls a motherfucking gun so what does Dalton do? rips that fucker's throat out Literally rips his throat out and spin kicks him into the lake. <laughs> Just in time for Doc Clay to run up and see what has happened and for for Dalton to scream Brad Wesley's name into the fucking night and shove his head honcho's body into the lake where he will see it as it crosses into the moonlight. <laughs> I wonder why I simply couldn't describe the scene better. You're absolutely right. That's precisely what happens. <laughs> Spin kick Jimmy is buried at Lake Beach Sea. <laughs> it's a it's a Diet Coke Viking funeral for a Diet Coke Viking. And it's in it's in this moment that we see that Brad Wesley thinks he may have finally bitten off more than he can chew. But that's not going to stop him. Nothing can stop him at this point because pride cometh before the fall. It sure does. The um and he Brad Wesley does the next thing he does seals his fucking doom. Yes. Brad Wesley has Wade Garrett beat to fucking back and then calls Dalton at the double deuce and tells him to pick heads or tails. Is it going to be Wade or is it going to be the Doc? Which one is going to die? And Dalton goes to check on the dock. And when he comes back, Wade Garrett has a knife in his chest with a note that says it was tails. I know you probably weren't expecting that because Roadhouse has been so fucking amazing so far, but they killed Wade Garrett. And Dalton breaks down and cries. As do I, because Wade Garrett has been killed. Yes. But he doesn't cry for too long, though. No, because it's fucking time for vengeance. (laughs) You see, I counted. I double-checked the tape. You see two tears escape Dalton's face before he takes the knife out of Wade Garrett and goes on his way to get revenge. Yes. 
And this revenge scene is so like even down to the minute details in it are so good, especially the beginning because we see he, not only does he, he doesn't take the the beater that he has, he takes the Mercedes, the pristine Mercedes, and commences to like just take that car straight into the Brad Wesley compound. Yeah. Fuck right. all about all the people that are shooting guns at the car or whatever. This car is going to get fucked up. It's like the thing that like, it's, it's a symbol of like, of like it's all of his careful, like compartmentalizing and planning and all these, like the cool collectedness of, of Dalton. And that all gets thrown by the wayside because he fucking rams that Mercedes <laughs> into these motherfuckers oh, yeah. oh, and yeah. it explodes in a blaze of glory. Oh yeah. Wade Garrett is dead. All bets are off. Yeah. Like, the uh, you had cool calm collected Dalton. Now you've got the fist of an angry god from beyond time and space. <laughs> and of so, course, when they open the door to the car, Dalton isn't in it. No, why but would what he? What is exactly? But what is is the knife used to kill Wade Garrett stabbed into the floorboard to hold the gas pedal down? And what is between the knife and the floorboard that it stabbed through? A quarter showing tails god fucking dalton that is that philosophy degree at work yes now at the compound we literally have the whole rogues gallery from the film we've got scooter the nephew we've got terry funk we've got mr boot knife we've got baldy like we in fact also have tinker and this is, I believe, the final the final costume change for Tinker, where he is back in those beautiful acid wash jeans, those classic red suspenders. But now he's just got a simple, plain white T-shirt underneath. The a common man is Tinker. He's got his caterpillar hat back on. The um, and let me tell you, I I I at this point fear for Tinker's life because Dalton is not here to take fucking prisoners. As well, you should. <laughs> <laughs> The um, but like it is like the and you're absolutely right. The the Mercedes obliterates a fence, like obliterates another fence. They pour shotgun shells and bullets into it. It does not stop, and they don't realize it until it's about five yards away from eating them alive. <laughs> the um, but the. The, the the presence of the exploding Mercedes Benz is simply the opening shot in the war Dalton has called. Yes. He proceeds to move through this <laughs> this fucking compound, this mansion, and take out all of them one by one. Um in even though we don't see some of the of the 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 violence on screen. Like I think I believe there's a few of them, including Terry Funk, who are taken out off screen. But you see, like we see Scooter, we see uh Bald Baldy or whatever we want to call them, male pattern baldness. Yeah. Then, uh, yeah, like yeah, Terry Funk is like he's obliterated off screen, but it's clear like he did not go down easy. No, no, not at all. He's um, just a heap on the ground. <laughs> and then of course, last but not least, we have Tinker. The tinker, poor sweet tinker who is incapacitated by a fucking stuffed polar bear. There is a full size taxidermied polar bear 
that Brad Wesley has kept in his house as decor that is pushed on top of Tinker, and he is not able to move. He is completely immobilized, which is amazing because it took a bear to stop a bear. <laughs> I also love the fact that he's clearly like 15 seconds of the bear tipping over onto him where he could have easily moved out of the way, but he's just frozen. I honestly, my, 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 my fan theory is that he knew that if he got out from under that bear, it was all over. Like the bear was in fact protecting him. And ultimately it does. And ultimately it does protect him. Yeah. Oh yeah. We'll get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there, but you're absolutely right. Like the, um, the uh, boot knife turns out was the one who killed Wade Garrett and Dalton does not make his, his going into the night gentle. It is mean. Uh, yeah. He throws a knife into scooter, the nephew. So, and uh, yeah, I think Baldy was just like with Terry Funk. I think they're just dead on the floor somewhere. So it's only Brad Wesley and Tinker that are left and Tinker gets scared by all of the taxidermy animals. <laughs> Like he begins firing on the polar bear that Dalton pushes on top of him. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, it's like, the most Keystone Cops aspect of this fucking movie. <laughs> I have to trust Dalton's discernment because he spared Tinker. He did. He did spare Tinker. The um, but so. Uh, as as we move into the the, the 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 end game of this film, Brad Wesley is hunting Dalton around this room full of taxidermied beasts, and uh, it's it's a real cat and mouse game. He of course discovers poor polar bear Tigger, and Brad Wesley makes another greatest mistake of his life by trying to come at Dalton hand to hand. Oh God, yes. I think at one point he like uses a spear. Yeah. And he pulls multiple guns. And then Dalton goes in for the throat tear. But he's <laughs> but he stops himself. He can't he, go that far again. He can't he can't do it. Wade would want him to be better. Doc would want him to be better. And and the doc actually does run in because the doc is constantly like like coming in and out of the scene when Dalton is either making or about to make the world's worst decisions. Yes. The uh, Brad Wesley goes for a gun and he, so here um, Red who owns the auto shop comes back and shotgun blasts Brad Wesley in the chest. Brad Wesley gets back up and then Emmett appears and shotgun blasts Brad Wesley in the fucking thigh. (laughs) Then the Ford dealership owner. Yeah, then the Ford dealership owner shows up and and shotgun blasts Brad Wesley in the torso. And finally, (laughs) Frank Tillman, who has the only double-barreled shotgun out of the whole group, steps up and double shotgun blasts Brad Wesley through the chest, through a glass table, and is dead. And of course, poor, poor Tinker has witnessed the whole thing. Yep. 
I do love Tillman's line there. Of course, you know, we own this town. Yeah. <laughs> And fucking blast Wesley away, and Tinker, like Tinker, has the fourth, the wherewithal to notice what's around him, but as because the cops are rushing in now at this point too, oh, yeah. right? And, and of course, and, they they gather the shotguns and take them away. Yes, everybody gives their shotguns to Red, and Red just bolts it. Like there's no, like there's no firearms, and Tinker sees he's still holding his gun, and he throws it away as he gets out from underneath the polar bear because, like, I, I don't need to have that on the, me right now. Because the cops are about to run in, and this is the first time we have seen any legal authorities in the movie Roadhouse. <laughs> yes. And basically all the business owners are like, yeah, I don't know. He was, he, he was shotgun blast when I blasted when I got here. Yeah, didn't see anything. And they all look at motherfucking Tinker. And they're like, what did you see, Tinker? And Tinker delivers the line, a bear fell on my head. (laughs) Causing the entire Chamber of Commerce to break down laughing. (laughs) Anyway, fuck you. We're cutting back to Jeff Healy playing some supremely tasty blues licks in the double deuce. (laughs) Finn. Yeah. Fucking Roadhouse. And this movie ends as all all movies should with Patrick Swayze nakedly leaping into a lake after a lady who is also naked. (laughs) Oh, God. Fucking Roadhouse. I... I understand that you've you've gone with us on this trip, on this journey through the plot of of Roadhouse and and some of our thoughts about that, you know, aforementioned plot. And you might be saying to yourself, uh, you know, Wonder Boy Hollis, this isn't really an efficient way to go about expressing your your love for a movie. Surely you could have truncated that. You could have uh, you could have maybe you could have maybe you know skipped skipped some points in there. What exactly could we have skipped? The bar fight karate, Jeff Healy, Tinker's wardrobe. I submit to you that we completed this as quickly as we could, as best we could, understanding that you needed to you needed to understand every aspect that you could of Roadhouse before you go and experience it for yourself. And it's very fitting, even compared to the film, because if I'm not mistaken, the first cut of this movie was three hours and 20 minutes long and they had to cut that down to an hour 56 which means there's a whole lot of extra roadhouse footage out there if i get my hands (laughs) on a three-hour cut of roadhouse it will be all i watch for the rest of my natural fucking life (laughs) god it's such a good movie. It's it's so fun. It's like I don't even really know what else to say about Roadhouse at this point. Like it's, it is it is the perfect encapsulation of hyper masculinity as farce. Yet oh, yeah. also having such a sincere heart about the story it wants to tell with all these elements of different genres that are thrown into it. You have elements of Westerns in there. You have elements of Southern noir in there. And then you have elements of just like that, that just plain old unabashed eighties era action film. 
you know, absolutely. Absolutely. I like uh, roadhouse is almost too audacious to be toxic. Like, yes, it is. It is hyper masculine. Um, Yes, it is deeply misogynistic. Yeah. But it's so bizarrely earnest. Like Roadhouse, you can say what you want about Roadhouse, and there's plenty to say about Roadhouse. I'm pretty sure we just did it for several hours. Um, But Roadhouse has an ethos. Like Roadhouse has a philosophy, and it's not altogether a bad one. No, it's it's not at the at the kernel of it. It's very much reflected in Dalton. Yes. Oh, yeah. Agreed. And it's yeah. also also the you know what we jokingly call the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. The um, I think Roadhouse. Like you're probably if you're listening to this and you continue to listen to us, you're probably going to notice a theme where a lot of our films come from the '80s. Um, that has a lot to do with just who we are and you know the era we grew up in. Mm-hmm. But I, I would also like to think that part of that is that the, the 80s was a weird, you know, and an ostentatious time for film. When even something like Roadhouse had to have like core thematic elements. <laughs> and we are at the end of the day, uh, a better world <laughs> because we have Roadhouse in it. Completely agree. And Roadhouse was better for having Terry Funk in it, even if Amen. it was only for maybe fifteen minutes of screen time, if that. <laughs> the um, well, and it, it wasn't uh, the uh, Terry Funk was no, also no stranger to Hollywood, as uh, he did he did stunt coordination as well on on more than a few things. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. That doesn't shock me. I mean, obviously, you know, he's he's been in films previous to this, so like. He definitely has a presence there, and it's amazing that he didn't kind of catch on more so in that world. And honestly, when I think about it, you know, just has a magnetism yeah. to him. Yeah, absolutely. I it's uh, even in this movie, like whenever whenever he was on screen, it was it was kind of impossible not to see him because he was, as we have described. Roadhouse is, is is basically a live action cartoon in many ways. Yeah. And Terry fits that sensibility perfectly. I mean, wrestlers kind of fit that sensibility perfectly. Um it's it's why even in the middle of, of you know, even in the, the middle of uh, of films like, you know, uh one in, in you know, middle of a Rocky film, you'll have Hulk Hogan show up as Thunder Lips. Mm-hmm. Um or why in the middle of Spider-Man, Randy Savage shows up as Bonesaw McGraw. Or like, why Roddy Piper pulled off all of the roles that he did oh, in his yeah. Hollywood era. Everything right? in They Live. Everything from They Live. Also, and honestly, in Hell Comes to Frogtown. I'm, I'm uh, hell, <laughs> hell fucking yes, Hell Comes to Frogtown. That is absolutely on our list, by the way. Um, oh, I'm sure it is. The, um, like, the one of the things like one of the things we've talked about uh in in sort of approaching required reading and something that we hope you you kind of uh you you see along with us 
is that wrestling is about being larger than life. Wrestling is about capturing storytelling and myth-making in the real world. So it, it just makes sense when you watch something as just ludicrously over the top as Roadhouse. Like, of course, Terry Funk's there. He's a professional cartoon character. Yeah. And that is not an insult. That is a mark of a of an a consummate professional. Yeah. I mean, it all boils for me, it boils down to one moment in this film. And and you know, I think this would be my my last like thought on it. And I'll turn the floor over to you for your final thoughts. But there's only one motherfucker in that final scene where the Mercedes is charging the mansion and they're all firing their guns that's wearing fucking cowboy boots and it's Terry fucking funk <laughs> it's the um with them jeans tucked in them suckers yeah it's I get <laughs> you're absolutely you're absolutely fucking right um the uh I my final thought w- for the for the, you know, the match and the movie is, I guess I guess it comes down to thinking about how how Roadhouse decides to end. Thinking about how Terry Funk, you know, was talking into that mic at the end. Earnestness in ridiculousness is inherently human. Mm-hmm. We are we are just we are weird people and we tell weird and wild stories, you know, between you know, between sunrises. And things like over the top action movies and wrestling, they get to a truth in there that to me must be present or else we wouldn't keep bothering with them. So I strongly recommend watching Roadhouse and watching uh Terry and Dory Jr. uh wrestle in the in the 83 match with with uh Hanson and, and Terry Gordy because It's gonna be it's gonna be ridiculous fun that makes you feel human. Yeah. And that's what Terry Funk was all about. And at I at the end of the day. I, yeah. And I, I think he I I I think watching Roadhouse and watching that match, it's clear that he was having a ball. Yeah. And I'm I'm glad he decided to share that with us. Likewise. Oh, man. Well, we can add both of those to the syllabus now. Hollis, thank you again for for coming on here and chat with me and about such a deeply held topic such as, as Terry Funk and all the topics you talk about on this show. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. No, of course, always. Um, before we kind of wrap up here, I just want to say uh, thank you to uh, 
Reverend Rabies, the aforementioned Reverend Rabies for our theme song here on the show, uh, as well as a uh, thank you to Irvin West for designing the required reading logo. Um, Hollis, ugh, we'll be back next month to, to talk about Bray Wyatt and and some other stuff around around Bray Wyatt. I still don't know what the film is going to be yet, but I'm very curious to hear what your choice is going to be. There, um, there, there have been, there have been some ones knocking around my head. Suffice to say, I, I think, I think Bray Wyatt would want us to celebrate the weird and wild and wacky too in, in our, in, in sort of his own way. So there's definitely some curveballs that we could throw in there. Oh, based off of the match that I've chosen for us next month. Yes. You hit the nail on the head. Beautiful. Um, yeah, but, um, that's going to do it for this for this month for this episode of required reading Hollis, thank you again and uh i don't know you put it well last time on the show as as a closer so i'll turn it over to you the um go out have ridiculous fun and then come back in 30 days yeah class dismissed <laughs>